Hello, and welcome to the Dottacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week and has a monthly Patreon-only episode, but not here. Oh, no, not here. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brett B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And we are gathered here today to talk about Game of Thrones, Season 8, Episode 6, The Iron Throne, in which we dream of spring during the time of wolves after the winds of winter have finally blown, or, or something like that. Before we actually get into the episode itself, we wanted to give a special th- shout out and thank you to the band Intermissions Music for allowing us to use their music. It's the music that you just heard, the intro of this podcast, is from uh, their 2011 EP entitled Summer Child, where you can find the song that actually starts our po- every podcast of ours called Summer Child. And you can find them at intermu- intermissionsmusic.com. You can find them on Facebook. You can find them at soundcloud.com forward slash forward slash intermissions. And you can find them also at Twitter at twitter.com forward slash intermissions and why. So we wanted to thank those gentlemen for allowing us to use their music and they do great stuff. They're fans of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And they also create fantastic music, like I said. Something I really love about the community is that the artists involved, not just in terms of writing and making podcasts, but also doing incredible artwork or playing music. Just the other day, I was in New York to watch the finale and I was hanging out with uh, the band Manimals, who uh, do, do a lot of a lot of great songs, but they did a whole concept album seven based on a song of ice and fire, and they were playing some of the songs. And I was just, I'm, you know, I was feeling just so into that that sense of not just everyone appreciating the art of a song of ice and fire in Game of Thrones, but building on top of it with their own art. And yeah, Intermission does great stuff, and we're super grateful for them uh, allowing us to use their song, which is of course super catchy. It gets my toes tapping every time I listen to it, and I listen to it even more than you guys do. So thank you very much to them. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. So our spoiler warning as we transition to the episode itself, we'll be talking potentially about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, and especially Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. So Emmett, where do we go now? Where do we go? Oh, 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 where do we go? Sweet child. Sweet chai, I, I, uh, is that getting annoying yet? I'm not going to stop you, buddy. I think one thing that you and I can both agree on is that Axel Rose is a pure legendary genius and nothing will ever silly it. Yes, true, true, true. Okay, so where do we go now, now that Game of Thrones is officially over? What will become of the Not A Cast podcast? And one of our poor fellow patrons, Sir John of the Misty Isles, asked us that very question, what will become of us? And we wanted to kind of briefly have this opportunity to talk with you guys about what happens to the Notacast podcast after after Game of Thrones is over? We started the podcast during an off-season from the show. It's, it's built around the books. We only kind of reference the show glancingly a lot of the times. But there's no question that a lot of the energy and love and excitement that goes into this fandom is built around the show. And, and the ending of the show, regardless of how you feel about season eight or that particular episode, is, is a very kind of a bittersweet ending in itself for the, for the fandom as we, we find ourselves on kind of shaky ground because there's not this clear direction. Oh, the next season is coming. The next season is coming. I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder how it's going to end. That's over now, so we have to invent this new structure. Mm-hmm. HBO isn't providing us the structure anymore. George, bless his heart, is not exactly the most reliable at providing us with a structure in terms of a new book. So more than ever now, we have to come up with it on our own, but thankfully, we love doing that. And you guys seem to love it as well. So we've got we got plenty of content that's still coming down the pipeline that we're going to throw ourselves into with as much fervor and glee as we have been during the season. 
Yeah, absolutely. So like I was saying, we started this podcast as a chapter by chapter podcast, starting with chapter zero, the prologue from A Game of Thrones. And we progressed on now to nearly the very end of A Game of Thrones itself. And we were talking just before you came on air about how we're thinking that how we're projecting right now that we will end the Game of Thrones in the late June, early July timeframe and pick up a Clash of Kings thereafter. So we've we're getting close to the 70 episode mark itself on the main cast, which is a lot of fun. And those chapter by chapter episodes are going to continue every single week going forward, which is going to be so much fun getting into Clash and finally getting to status, man. I'm so excited for that. Absolutely. We have a, a, a lot of buildup to pay off there because we've been we've been teasing, finally sinking our teeth into Stannis' story for a while and all the other great elements in Clash of Kings, of course, that, that we're going to love getting into. But yeah, that's we're, we're in some prime book material right now. So if you guys haven't checked out our, our chapter by chapter episodes, please feel free. We're, we're covering stuff like the, the first big battles in the Game of Thrones, the first big use of blood magic, Ned Stark's execution. And then, of course, when we get to class, we're going to get into everything that flows from those. So you can check out uh, not a cast of asoiif.podbean.com or check us out on, on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify now. And then, of course, there's our Patreon if you haven't checked out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast asoiif where you can, uh, if you sign up, you can not only get early access to our weekly episodes and show notes and the opportunity to have questions answered in the podcast, but you can also get access to our patron exclusive episodes, an entire other section of the Nauticast besides our chapter by chapter and Game of Thrones coverage. Episodes that cover a variety of different topics in the A Song of Ice and Fire universe and are exclusively for patrons $5 a month and up. Yeah, so we got stuff about Sir Barristan's fate in The Winds of Winter. Why is The Winds of Winter taking so goddamn long? What Stannis' endgame is going to be in the books as compared to the show? A whole analysis on the city of Volantis itself. We also do some character analysis on Robert Baratheon, our dearly beloved, dearly beloved, that's a terrible, dearly beloved, not so beloved king of Westeros that departed a few, about a dozen episodes or so ago on the main cast. We have a massive Q&A. We've got a four-part analysis of George R. R. Martin's most recently published book, which is Fire and Blood Volume 1. We also have a really fun one about the comparison between Jon Snow and Young Griff and how they compare and contrast with each other. And then, of course, if you'd like to go back and listen, you can listen to our speculations about Season 8, which were, of course, proved 100% accurate, which is, you know, it's us, guys. You know we would be accurate in all the things we were saying. And then our most recent one was our theory analysis, which was about the Night Lamp, how Stannis Baratheon will wreck the phrase in the Winds Winter in the coming Battle of Ice. And we do cover a lot more topics than simply the battle itself, so I do recommend you guys check it out if you've not already checked that out. So all of those episodes are going to keep coming out on the Patreon side, and our next one is going to come out the week after you hear this podcast episode, and it's going to be our overall wrap-up review analysis of Game of Thrones Season 8, and probably a little bit of our overview wrap-up of, of Game of Thrones as a TV show and what it's actually meant to us individually. I mean, it only makes sense that after looking back on each episode in turn, we try to come up with our big picture take on the season as a whole and the show as a whole and just kind of emotionally process what it means for this to end. As, as I said, I think a lot of us are feeling many complicated feelings regardless of where we come down on season eight as a whole. So we want to just sort through those and, and, you know, have you guys listen and sort through your feelings with us. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. And, and like Jeff said, we got all those earlier Patreon episodes avail- available at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. And those are a lot of fun because they get into 
something other than just the chapter by chapter focus, but these broader topics, specific characters. We had our friend Grant, aka Heathen King, on for that Jon Snow and Young Griff one, and that was really great to talk to him about because he's he's really interested in Jon Snow's character, but also interested in how Jon Snow kind of reflects off other characters like Young Griff. But uh, speaking of Jon Snow, he's also going to feature heavily in another upcoming Patreon episode of ours. Yes, in June, our next Patreon episode after this season eight wrap up one will be called Whitewashed. John, Danny, and Tyrion in Game of Thrones. So it'll be a super non-controversial episode talking about how the adaptation of these characters has worked out. Uh, Emmett and I have written a lot about these three characters in particular and their adaptation in Game of Thrones. So we figured we would kind of put all of our thoughts together and finally put our two giant foreheads together to kind of knock out this episode. Uh, and talking about how the adaptation process has worked in Game of Thrones and how, especially in later seasons, but not strictly in later seasons, our three big main characters in A Song of Ice and Fire and in Game of Thrones have been adapted quite differently from their book version. There's there's a lot of, of course, good things to say about those three characters and performances in the show, but I think if you put the three of them together, especially with how things shook out in season eight, I think you can see clear signs where the writers and showrunners, for good reasons and bad, shied away from where Martin has already gone with those characters in the books and where he's where he seems to be going with them going into Winds of Winter. So that's going to be available for all five Don't Know About patrons at the end of June. We are approaching our next stretch goal, which is to get at $5,000 a month on Patreon. And that entails new types of benefits. You can hear me read the next three chapters from the uh, the world-famous The Cautioner's Tale book that I've been writing since 2009 and is finished and is looking for, looking for representation. If you're a literary agent, at me. We're also going to transition from doing a quarterly live stream of our chapter by chapter podcast to doing it monthly now. So if you, we know a lot of you folks are interested in watching us talk about these episodes and being more interactive with us. And this gives you more of an opportunity to do that as well. And then finally, we will have a brand new monthly Patreon only podcast coming your way in which Emma and I will go chapter by chapter on the other books written by George R. Martin, books not in the Ice and Fire universe. And we're pleased to announce that our first book that we'll be covering, provided that we reach that stretch goal, is George R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel, Fever Dream, which if you guys have never read that book and you're looking for something to read and you're waiting for the winds of winter, well, read Fever Dream first because it is one of the best novels that I've read outside of A Song of Ice and Fire, outside of A Dance of Dragons specifically. So I, I think you guys would enjoy it. We are looking forward to doing that with you guys. And... Yeah, we appreciate, again, all your support that you've given us to, you know, allow us even to say that it's a possibility we can actually do this. So thank you all so very much. We're always so flattered and humbled by your by your support and the, you know, the respect that comes behind the support is, is just wonderful. And yeah, Fever Dream is a terrific novel. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should do so to catch up before we reach that stretch goal or you can read it along with us. That'll be fun. And yeah, it's a great novel in itself. It'll be fun to just get into George's style in a different context, but also, of course, to draw links between it and A Song of Ice and Fire, because I think there are some really telling parallels between the, the slavers in Essos or certain aspects of the Greyjoys, certain aspects of the Boltons. I think there's, there's some fun stuff to talk about, and I just always love a good vampire story. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. There's a ton of benefits you can already get there if you sign up, and then the benefits will only increase if you reach our stretch goal. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun taking this journey with you guys. And it's going to be a number of years. You're, you're going to have us along for at least through A Dance of Dragons through, I guess, 2024-ish or so is what we're calculating right now. And of course, with The Winds of Winter coming next week and A Dream of Spring after that, we'll be around for a long, long time after that. So thank you all so much for your listening ears and your patronage. And on that same note, 
uh, this kind of like melancholy feeling. Sir Alex A., one of our poor fellow patrons, asks, what is your primary emotional reaction to the fact that the TV series is over? After the last two seasons, I am relieved. I like the ending for the most part, but the path to get there was so rushed and poorly plotted that I am glad to have the show behind us. So, yeah, I mean, my emotional reaction is somewhat relief, somewhat sadness, somewhat feeling like, I don't know. I, I just, I haven't totally processed it yet. What about you, Emmett? Well said, sir. I think I'm going to be thinking about it for a while. There, I am, I am glad the show is over in the sense that I think the discourse around it, and I include ourselves in that from time to time, is, is not particularly great. It's, 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 it's kind of evolved into a lot of infighting and nitpicking and bad faith arguments, both from people who like the show or don't like the show or in between. So I, I think it's going to be good for all of us to move on somewhat from that. Mm-hmm. I, am, I am sad because as much as I don't like a lot of where the discussion has gone, that still represents a lot of fandom and excitement and community. And I do think that is going to drop off inevitably somewhat now. And, you know, that's that's sad, but it's also completely natural. And it's it's the show had to end eventually, for better or worse. So, and yeah, those emotions for me, as, as I've said before, almost kind of detached from the quality of the episode itself. Like, regardless of how the show ended, these these mixed feelings were going to be were going to be there, and there was always going to be, I think, only a partial sense of closure. But I'm still so happy with with my overall relationship to this story, and I'm not remotely tired of that. I'm not yeah. remotely tired of exploring th- this story and this world and how other people connect to it, and and seeing what other people come up with that I never would have come up with, and. I feel like we can get back to that with 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 no no reservations and, and no um no no existing arguments around the show that are just kind of going in circles at this point. So I think I, I hope that our, our reengagement with the, the material we have will be all all the fresher and more rejuvenating and enthusiastic now that the show is over. Yeah, I think that's a great hope, and I think it's one that's going to be fulfilled. I think when we look at how this show is ending and we're seeing the totally legitimate and overwhelming emotions that are coming from the fandom and from folks who are reminiscing about their experiences in the community and starting out on the show or the books first and then transitioning to the books or transitioning to the show. It's cool. It's really, really cool. And yeah, obviously it's going to drop off a bit. Not sure how much is going to drop off yet, but at the same time, I think it's, that doesn't mean it's, that's, that's not a bad thing. I think at some point down the road, I genuinely, genuinely believe that George R. Martin is going to release the wind's the winner. Now, it's not going to be next week or the week after that, like we say, but I do think it's going to come out, and I think that's going to bring a lot of people either back into the fandom or bring a lot of new people in who pick up the books for the first time to go through the first five books, and then they come back and in, in, in preparation for the wind's the winner coming out. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to see a new, a new wrinkle in the fandom, even newer than when Dance came out in 2011 and the show was just finishing its first season. You know, Game of Thrones was not the cultural monster that it is now in 2011. It was pretty popular. It was one of HBO's most popular shows. But when Dance came out thereafter and reached the New York Times number one on the New York Times bestseller list, it was cool. I think we're going to see it, I don't know how many times over than what we saw in 2011, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to bring a new era to the fandom. And I'm still just as excited for that to happen. I have not lost an ounce of my 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 delight and anticipation for that. And not just the book itself, but... Like, we're just going to be so overwhelmed with joy at each other when, if and when right. we get that announcement. You know, I just, I'm just going to want to high five everybody online all day long. <laughs> and everyone's going to be feeling that that same thing. And I'm sure there'll be some naysayers of some kinds. But that 
the rush of feeling that with everybody is something I've been looking forward to for a long time, just as much as reading the winds of winter. And I, I am still, I was, I was worried I would get through to the other side of game of Thrones and not be as excited for that. And I am glad that that's not the case. Yeah. I think it's a great, great point. And something we can touch upon next week upon our Patreon episode about season eight and how it's going to impact our feelings about the winds of winter. But speaking of the TV show itself, you know, it's kind of, I'm a little bit bummed, I have to admit, that we're not going to be able to talk about that throne show every single week. Yes, it is a lot of, yes, it is a bit of extra work on both Emmett's and my part to write these episodes and think about and come up with interesting things that you all um, disagree with. And... But labor of love, even when you disagree with us, especially when you disagree with us. Yeah, but, you know, what about TV shows? I mean, we talked about all our podcasts we're going to be doing and our live streams, but there has to be some other TV show we can review, right? Well, of course, we're going all the way through Deadwood in anticipation of the Deadwood movie. <laughs> but no, of course, as, as we know, they're attempting to turn Game of Thrones into the next Marvel slash Star Wars permanent franchise, multiple shows, multiple ideas, multiple prequels kind of kind of thing. We'll see how successful they are. I think it's it's fascinating that they're doing it. And the, the, the first of the multiple proposed prequel series that they're going to be going with is The Long Night. We don't have many details about it, but it's going to have something to do with the events 8,000 years ago or so before the main story in the regarding the first invasion of the White Walkers in Westeros and some other historical figures who were around then or can, can be fit to being in around then in the show canon, if not necessarily in the book canon. So when we get The Long Night, whenever that airs in, in 2020, we are going to be do a weekly reviews of each episode of it. We're going to come right back just as we did our Game of Thrones content and talk about each episode of The Long Night as it unfolds. And that's going to be, I'm really looking forward to that, not only just to be talking to you about it and to be engaging with our listeners about it, but because I'm fascinated to see what they make of a show with presumably unabashed high fantasy elements bursting from every corner, which uh, Game of Thrones has done very in a very limited fashion. So I'm very curious to see what they do, and I'm very curious to see if it's successful, because there are ele- there are elements in such a show that I would not instinctively think would translate to a mass audience, but I wouldn't necessarily thought Game of Thrones would. So hmm. I could be I could be very wrong about that, and I'm I'm really looking forward to doing that with you, sir. Yeah, I'm excited about that as well. I I was thinking about this a few days ago, and my guess is that this long night show is pitched as something like the Vikings or the Last Kingdom meets the Walking Dead. Which That's a good be, call. Which I think is interesting because if you guys have not checked out Vikings or uh, or The Last Kingdom, I would recommend checking them out, especially The Last Kingdom, which is really, really good. It's based on a series of books by Bernard, Bernard Cornwell, who's an English author and a friend of George R. R. Martin's himself. Uh, they're really good. The episodes are really good. It's a little bit of a different uh, tone, a little, more, a little lighter of a tone than Game of Thrones itself, but they are good. And I believe at least the first three seasons of The Last Kingdom are available on, on Netflix, at least for American subscribers. So I am curious about what The Long Night is going to look like. It's going to be interesting to see a Westeros that is not that doesn't have potentially castles or knights or chivalry or and especially dragons too. And I do wonder whether this show was picked up instead of a alleged Dance of the Dragon show or some other show because it was in a similar universe as A Song of Ice and Fire and as Game of Thrones, the main series, but it was different enough that it just wouldn't be pastiche of what Game of Thrones did from 2011 to 2019. So I'm excited to see what they come up with. I'm a little wary as well, like you are, but I really hope it does get a full run. As, as far as we know right now, they've only picked up the pilot episode so far, and we will see if they'll get a full run. I certainly hope so. 
I think that's a great comparison of a, a Viking slash Last Kingdom mashup with Walking Dead. I could totally see that being the elevator pitch for this show. And I think you're also right that it's it's just similar enough to Game of Thrones, but just distinct enough to be its own property. Again, I come back to the, the Star Wars movies now, and it's not just the main series. You have other elements like Rogue One or Solo, which are were very, whatever, regardless whether you like or hate them as movies, I think we're very precisely calculated in that vein. Like Rogue One still looks like a Star Wars movie, still moves like a Star Wars movie, but the, the characters come from much different backgrounds than are in most Star Wars movies, and Solo kind of worked the same way. So I could definitely see that with The Long Night, but I'm curious to see it's going to be like a Silmarillion situation where like, you know, Lord of the Rings has sold over 150 million copies or something like that. And it's, it's, you know, it's run and like the Hobbit has sold over hundred million copies. The Silmarillion, I sincerely doubt it's sold a million copies. And that of course is, is the big, you know, almost biblical esque backstory to, to Tolkien's universe. And the long night is, is roughly analogous to that. So I'm, I'm curious to see if, if it hooks an audience on that kind of like, that kind of grime and schlock, which I, I say is a compliment of, of, of stuff like The Walking Dead, or or if it feels a little too stilted and, and, and stiff the way fantasy often does for a mass audience. I, I certainly hope it's the former, but either way, it's a risk. And seeing seeing a risk done with this level of money is always interesting. Yeah, it's going to be so, so interesting. I'm very, I, I mean, gosh, I feel like we're talking like for like 35 minutes already before we've even talked about this episode itself. But I, I feel... I, I guess the one thing I'm, I'm very thankful for Game of Thrones, and I'll say this, I'll have a more longer thought about this next week for our patrons, is how it's made fantasy more mainstream. Lord of the Rings had that effect in the early 2000s or the early aughts, but Game of Thrones itself has made fantasy novels and fantasy as a storytelling medium very much the mainstream now. It's been very much a part of the same cultural zeitgeist that the MCU has had, that the uh, the DCU has had to a less has had less effectively, uh, but it's still there at some level, and I, I'm glad for that. It, it introduced me it introduced me personally to fantasy literature and to it introduced me more to realistic grounded fantasy literature and gra- realistic fantasy storytelling and TV and book medium, which I I appreciate now and helping to expand my my view and my my lens and and how I view this culture. So I appreciate that from both George and from D&D. Agreed. I think it's done great work for the genre, and clearly you shouldn't have written your your once-in-a-generation masterpiece, The Cautioner's Tale, about realistic, grounded things like men at war and dealing with psychological issues. Should have gone with orcs and ice demons, man. You got to seize that zeitgeist. I should have, and now now the zeitgeist is passing me even on that, so who who the fuck knows what's going to be coming out in years to come? What'll be the next thing that is going to grip our culture as a whole? So Don't worry. War will always be relevant, Jeff. Don't worry. Ah, uh, true. Yes, the... Uh, Oh, there's a great book back in the day by Dexter Filkins, a New York Times writer called The Eternal War, which is, uh, yeah. So it's always going to be around for a long time. Anyways, that that is our our podcast. No, I'm kidding. So, um, so now we actually get to actually talk about this episode, which is Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 6, The Iron Throne. And here is its synopsis. An ashen twilight falls over Tyrion, Jon, and Davos as they re-enter the city of King's Landing after its destruction by Danny and her dragonfire. Tyrion seemingly is our primary point of view, seeing dead children, horribly maimed men, and fires, fires everywhere. Nice little callback to Quentin there. Tyrion decides to press forward onto the Red Keep. Jon and Davos want to join him, but Tyrion says he wants to go on alone into the haunted house. In the Red Keep, Tyrion wanders through the blown-out castle, going through old rooms, the places where he used to live. He gets down into the, uh, I guess it's sort of the area around the black cells, and sees piles of rubble everywhere. He spots Jamie's golden hand. He rushes over and pulls the still-breathing Jamie and Cersei out of the rubble. Quick, he says, we must get you both to Illyria's Manson Pentos. 
again with the looks, Emmett. Always with the looks. Oh, wait, why? Oh, yes, now I see why. My notes actually say Tyrion finds Jamie and Cersei dead under the rubble and is devastated over it. Well, that seems more in keeping with what happened in the episode. I should never be surprised by your trolling, Jeff, but every time I manage to be. <laughs> We're then on to John and Davos coming on Grey Worm, sentencing Lannister prisoners to die. John tries to stop Greyburn from killing these men, and the Northmen and the Unsullied nearly come to blows. But Davos talks John down, and Azor High Reborn moves off while Greyworm slits and throats. Lovely. We're then on to the deck of the aircraft carrier WSS Viserys Targaryen as a mission accomplished banner is unfurled. John and Tyrion make their way down through cheering Dothraki and Silent Unsullied as, Dan as Daenerys Targaryen lands with Drogon. She, she then gives a new version of the Break the Wheel speech, this one written by the Project for a New Targaryen Century about liberating the entire goddamn world. Wow. Tyrion and John look on horrorstruck as the Unsullied stamp their spears into the ground and the Dothraki make their war cries. Everyone is cheering, those who are living anyways, because again, there's 10,000 fucking dead people in the city, if not more, but not Tyrion, Arya, or John. Tyrion approaches Danny and she tells him that he betrayed her by freeing Jaime. Tyrion responds with, yeah, I did, and you slaughter a whole city. He then drops his handpin onto the ground and lets it bounce down the steps. Tyrion is then taken into custody to await trial, and then John approaches Danny, but Danny is pretty darn icy towards him. Then up comes Arya to John to say that Danny is going to kill her and Sansa if she's not stopped. Then we're on to yet another jail cell for Tyrion Lannister. He talks with John. He asks whether he asked John whether he would have done the same thing that Danny did in destroying King's Landing. John lies and says he doesn't know. But Tyrion does think he knows what John thinks he knows. That's a tongue twister there. Love is the death of duty, John says. Well duty is the death of love, Tyrion replies. Did kind of like that line. We'll have more to say about the actual conversation when we get towards uh, a little bit later in this podcast. We're next in the Red Keep with Danny on the Iron Throne. She mounts the stairs, touching the blades on the throne itself. She turns to sit the Iron Throne, but then John arrives, and boy is John grumpy. He asks why Danny would give a command for prisoners to be executed, but she only responds with a variation of "Gotta crack a few Lannisters to make an atrocity line." She asks for John's love and loyalty, and John says, "Yes, you're my queen now and forever." And then he puts a motherfucking dagger through her heart. Danny dies in John's arms. Rip. Then John hears Drogon. He comes huffing and puffing up to the throne room. John thinks he's about to be served well done, but Drogon instead melts the Iron Throne before flying away forever. Bye, Drogon, I guess. Weeks later, Tyrion has a longer beard. He's led out to a he's led out to the dragon pit where he encounters Sansa, Arya, Bran, Sweet Robin, Bronze Jon Royce. And how the fuck is that guy still alive? Why did he fucking die at Winterfell? Just one more name character death wouldn't have saved that episode, but. <sighs> Also there present is the new Prince of Dorne, Prince Wenton Cartel, Yara Greyjoy's. <laughs> <laughs> little, little PQ catnip there for you. They're here to decide who will rule who will rule Westeros. John is the obvious pick, but the Unsullied want him dead. So Tyrion says they need to decide on how the next king gets picked. Sabo puts in that there should be an Athenian-style democracy with all citizens voting for the king, but he's laughed back to his seat. Lord Edgar Tully stands and starts to make the case for himself, but Sansa tells him to sit his ass back sit his ass back down before he can go on too long. <sighs> Game of Thrones, you do my boy Edmure so wrong. I'll have more to say about that later. Then Tyrion says they should select someone else. Bran Stark. Wait, Bran? Yes, Bran. Make him king. He can't have children, which, by the way, not quite scientifically accurate. D&D &D and George as well. He'll rule, and then they'll have a new council to select the king after him. Tyrion asks if Bran wants the job, and Bran says, why do you think I came all this way? The council all agrees, save for Sansa and Arya Stark. The North will be independent of the Seven Kingdoms again, with Sansa as Queen of the North. Woo woo! But that still leaves the question of what to do with Tyrion and Jon. As for Tyrion, Bran wants him to be Hand of the King. Grey Worm protests that this isn't justice, but Bran responds that Tyrion will earn his redemption for the rest of his life. And then there's the question of Jon. 
Our next scene has Tyrion coming up to Jon in his jail cell and telling him that he's being sent to the Night's Watch. Jon skeptically muses about whether the Night's Watch even exists anymore, which very fair, very fair skepticism, Jon. Not really sure about that in, time, in terms of the storytelling, but okay, we'll move on. Jon asks what, if they, what they did was the right thing, and Tyrion tells Jon to ask him again in 10 years. John is next marched toward, through the streets of King's Landing to the docks. He sees Arya, Sansa, and Bran. Sansa tells John she'll be able to see him as she'll be queen in the north, but Arya says, nah, she ain't going to be in the north. She's sailing west to find out what's west of Westeros. They all tearfully depart. We're then, uh, we're then in the White Sword Tower with Sir Brienne of Tarth, leaping through the White Book. She comes across Jaime's Lancer's quite outdated and unfinished entry and begins to end, and finishes his entry. Love that scene. We get... We then get a small council scene with Tyrion's hand. Bronn is master of coin. Davos is master of ships. Sir Brienne is lord uh, Milady, commander of the Kingsguard. Samuel Tarly is grand maester. Bran stops in to say that they need a master of whispers. He departs, and then the small council begins discussing the issue of taking out loans to feed the people. We close out the episode with Arya taking ship for the west. Sansa marching into Winterfell, into the Winterfell High Hall and being crowned with her subjects, shouting, Queen of the North! And Jon returning to Castle Black. He sees ghosts and pet him, and pets him. The final shot of Game of Thrones is Jon taking the wildlings north of the wall. And I really have no better way of describing this scene than the way our friend and our guest on the show, Lauren, a.k.a. Shakes of Thrones, did so on Twitter, which she said, quote, The story starts with, we should all start back. The series ends with another scene beyond the wall. But now, we're moving forward. And that is Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 6, The Iron Throne. And that is also... Game of Thrones, the TV series, which has dominated my cultural experience since 2011. We shall never see its like again, except in that long night show coming out later this year, and the three other successor shows that George has talked about, and of course the wins winner in a dream of spring, always on the horizon. Ever on the horizon. Ever just over the horizon. <laughs> well done, sir, as always with the synopsis, both Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, you do a great job. I did my best in a recent episode of the chapter by chapter, not a cast, on the uh, Tyrion 8, the Battle of the Green Fork, where I did the synopsis. It's not great. a lot of fun, but it was great. Well, thank you, sir. But I think Jeff, Jeff makes it a true art form, so well oh, done, buddy. Thanks, man. One passage from the books that really came to mind when I was watching specifically the, that bittersweet final shot of Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 6, The Iron Throne, comes when uh, John and Bran, for that matter, are traveling through the Gift. The Gift is this a strip of land in between the Stark Territory of the North and the Wall Territory of the Night's Watch. And it was, it was designed by Queen Alysanne Targaryen, good Queen Alysanne, when she visited the North. She advanced the, the kind of the new gift for this area to be for the, the sustenance and support of the Night's Watch. And it's this area that's, that's described in a, in a very lovely fashion. It's kind of having like green rolling hills and lots of apple trees and being very kind of tranquil. But it's also empty because constant raiding and, and feuds back and forth between the Northerners and the Wildlings have just made it unsafe to live for, for common people. And so you have in, in one of Bran's chapters in Storm of Swords, Jojen passes through and notes, this is really good land and hope someone comes and lives here again. And then in the next chapter, John is passing through the same territory and he has this quote. His lord father had once talked about raising new lords and settling them in the abandoned holdfasts as a shield against wildlings. The plan would have required the watch to yield back a large part of the gift, but his uncle Benjamin believed the lord commander could be won around so long as the new lordlings paid taxes to Castle Black rather than Winterfell. And this is the key. It is a dream for spring, though, Lord Eddard had said. Even the promise of land will not lure men north with the winter coming on. So as a lot of people have noted, that dream for spring line seems like a huge clue from the author given that as it stands currently the last book in the series is supposed to be titled a dream of spring so what that suggests is that something to do with this settling the gift area is is somehow like a, a microcosm of what george wants to see and plans to have us see at the end of the series 
But of course, the way Ned is framing it, he's he's going to settle these land as as a shield against the wildlings. That's going to continue the fight against the free folk, which in both books and show has been established as this kind of really terrible, ruinous war that destroys lives and is ultimately a distraction from the real threat of the White Walkers coming down behind the wildlings. So I think part of what I've always thought about, you know, that the end of, of the book series would involve is settling the gift, not against the wildlings, but with the wildlings, with the wildlings who have come through the wall and fought the others alongside the north. And they're going to live there and, and settle and farm that land as, as a sign of, of peace and harmony among these peoples. And I think you can see signs of that with like uh, Alice Karstark wearing, marrying Sigorn of Finn in A Dance with Dragons, this northern maiden and this wildling man. And Karstark lands are right next to the gift. So it, it all, it all kind of knits together that this this will be the area in the books that you see true happiness and promise and a dream of spring going forward. And I think we saw a version of that at the end of the show, because obviously the gift is not an established, really canonical part of the show. They, they did go through there, both John and Bran, but they didn't linger on it and talk about it as this important location thematically. So in the show, it makes sense, of course, that John and Tormund and the Wildlings go back north of the wall. I mean, it, it doesn't make a huge deal of sense because they were just trying to get south of there because it doesn't really support their territory. If you want to think about it literally, it doesn't actually work that well. But there was that one brief shot that everyone's pointed out of like the green coming up from the snow as, as John and Tormund and the Wildlings went north of the wall and the little the, 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 the hope that that gave. And so I, I got I got that 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 note from it that they had successfully incorporated that that emotion, that idea from the books that this there, there was going to be hope of, of renewal in the north where once we just seen death and snow and war. And that seemed indicative to me of this episode as a whole and a lot of the things I've said about season eight, which is that there are just a lot of, I think, long-term writing decisions that have made this season worse than it could have been. I think they're, they're, they're seeing the ripple effects of decisions made earlier, as George has talked about before, being a big you know problem with the show. And I think they were just, they were, they ended up rushing and ending that might have been more successful if it had some breathing room. However, the the foundations, the 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 concepts of where the characters are going and what it means, I think those are pretty much rock solid. And I did get that out of this episode, just as I've got that out of a lot of the episodes in season eight. That the this, the idea of John returning to the north and finding some renewal with the wildlings in this space where once there was nothing but fighting between them, that seems like something that's going to be foundational to the ending of the books. And I really loved it as the ending for the show. I think uh, our friend Lauren, aka Shakes of Thrones, was great that you quoted that this is, is we come full circle to the beginning. But as we said in our initial Not a Cast episode about the prologue, and as you can see going back to season episode one of season one, there's just no hope in that first trip beyond the wall. Everything is like miserable and bleak and scary. And even before the White Walkers show up, it's just way more Royce being an entitled asshole to these poor peasants who never really had a chance. And you get such a different feeling off the, the that end of the show. So before we get into the rest of the episode, I wanted to say that that it did leave me with that feeling and that, that connection to the books. And that was something really special. Yeah, I think you make a great point. I think the ending of season eight and the ending of Game of Thrones itself was bittersweet. And I, I feel like they actually landed it. They actually they didn't quite knock it out of the park, I would say. But I feel like that the ending landed for me emotionally. And I feel like that John as the final shot and John leading the wildlings north of the wall was one of those emotional points in the episode itself that worked really effectively and is likely going to be mirrored in Martin's own work in Dream of Spring. And I, you know, as you were talking through, I was also thinking about things like John integrating the wildlings with the semi-Northman-ish, with John integrating the wildlings with the citizens at at, uh, at Molestown in A Dance with Dragons, the wildlings joining the Night's Watch and, and also in A Dance with Dragons. And some of these chapters that are almost entirely forgotten by the fandom itself, like John 5. Who remembers John 5 from A Dance of Dragons? 
Fucking no one. Well, oh, well us, we do because we love dance, but we're the only two people who read read a dance with dragons. But yeah, it's that one where he's meeting the the wildling refugees and offering them food and telling them they have to choose between their old world and the new world. Yeah, and with that choice of that new world, we're seeing the integration there, and it's not a seamless integration. It's not as though conflicts aren't going to rise down the road, as we'll talk about later on, with the political solution for Westeros itself. But I think that we're seeing an emotionally good ending that shows us a lighter, happier path forward for Westeros and for the series as a whole. And I think that's great. I think it, as much as, and I was talking to my brother about this, as he hated the ending of this, but he also hated the ending to Return of the King from uh, from 2003, from, from Peter Jackson's version also, which, from Peter Jackson's version, which I have to admit, initially 2003, I had to use the bathroom in the movie theater. So I was kind of like getting ready to get the fuck out of the movie theater then. But in retrospect, looking back and rewatching Return of the King, I found myself gravitating towards that ending where you have actual character resolutions and end states for all of the major characters in the story. And I felt that that was really powerful and it's very powerful now. And it was really powerful to have the end states play out for each of the characters in the story in a way that felt true to both their character, true to their plot points, and true to the overall series as a whole. A Dream of Spring is a wonderful title for the final book. It's a wonderful way that we are ending Game of Thrones, is that people are looking, that we are emerging from winter, from war, from death, and we are seeing a new and better pathway forward. And I love that. It's a dream of spring, not a perfectly executed realization of spring. Right. You know, it's not the resolution of all problems. It's about the hope that keeps you going forward, a sense of rebirth and renewal. And not just that you're, it's not like the tone of A Feast for Crows where you're just going to circle endlessly in the mud until you die like everyone who came before you. And I say with love, I love A Feast for Crows, but it's that very bleak tone that I think people don't want to see at the end. Obviously, people don't want a, a pasted on happy ending, but there has to, has to be a sense of escaping cycles, you know, a, a sense of, of moving forward. And what you're moving forward to isn't going to be perfect, but as Lauren said, at least you're moving forward. And mm-hmm. I really got that that strong sense at the end with that great montage of the Starks all moving forward on, on different axes and different parts of the world. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff, as I said, that it took to get us here, I, I, I didn't love as much. I think that the, for me, the second half of this episode felt stronger than the first half on the whole. <laughs> the first half, I think, was an effective mood piece, but there were some decisions I didn't like at all, which we'll get into. <laughs> but that, that that sense of resolution was really what this episode had to do more than anything else. And I think it did well. Overall, looking back on season eight, and of course, we'll talk much more about season eight as a whole in our aforementioned Patreon episode, I think I would probably rate this second to uh, Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Hmm. What do you think, sir? I think you're right. I think Night of the the Seven Kingdoms is a 10 out of 10 episode. I think this episode is a solid 9 out of 10 in terms of episode itself. I know it's kind of high praise, and I know everyone's going to hate me for it, and I accept and love your hate. Bring it on, baby. So that kind of takes us into some of our more general highlights and lows before we start talking about some of the major themes and plot points in this episode itself. So Emmett, what did you think were some, what was your highlight for this episode? Queen in the North, Queen in the North. If I am ever queen, I'll make them love me. This, this was definitely my favorite part of the episode. Sansa getting crowned at the end and all those swords going up and that being the last line of like audible dialogue in the show was everyone shouting Queen in the North. Oh, that was, that was lovely. It was, it was so satisfying and well-deserved for her. And I've really liked how they've written Sansa and Arya this season which is amazing because that was my big problem with season seven. But I think that's one of the highlights of season eight is that they both seemed really human and you understand where they're coming from and where they're going and why they make the decisions they make at the end. 
and they're both really sad, but also satisfied at some level. This is something I've talked about with a, a bunch of people since the episode, and I don't know, this, this might require an essay of its own mm-hmm. at some point, or maybe a Patreon episode, we'll see how it goes, mm-hmm. but there's just a great meta arc here for Sansa, as not just as a person in universe, but as a character. Because if you look back at the pitch letter from 1993, uh, you know, Sansa is supposed to marry Joffrey and bear his children and turn on her family and maybe come to regret it at some point later in life, but like that's kind of where her arc stops, like where we think of her as her arc at the end of book one, beginning of book two. That being the case, the fact that she might be in, in the books as well as the show Queen in the North at the end is just such a powerful transformation of her character. And I would just love, I would love to see an interviewer at some point down the line when all the books come out, I guess, pick George's mind about that and about how that process happened. But that's, I just think that's incredibly moving, not just that she ended up in this great place that fits her character, but that George made that decision after starting to write her and decided to go back and, you know what, this is not particularly interesting what I'm doing and I'm not going to have much to do with her as the story expands. I want a different place for her. I want a different story for her. And he made it happen. And he made it happen in a way that made, I think, a lot of people just uh, cry and relate really strongly and come away feeling great. Chloe, a.k.a. Liza Narber from Girls Gone Canon, of course, as you know, is a huge Sansa Stark fan. So she's just been walking on air since that episode for, for that for that reason alone. And that that felt... That felt earned and communal in a way that even some other great moments in season eight didn't quite feel to me. That felt like, ah, I see I see the long, clean narrative lines that led us here. I see an arc coming together for Sansa. And I just, I thought that was wonderful. I, I have to say, I, I, I agree. I, I never would in a million years have believed that I would be emotional and feel real, real emotions about Sansa Stark being claimed as Queen of the North. But it felt real and it felt great. And I was happy for Sansa Stark and I was rooting for her. Like it was the moment where I was seeing that her brothers had gone before her, John in season six, Rob in season one and in Game of Thrones. Like these moments of these characters being crowned King of the North were, you know, very moving moments for me and as portrayed in the in, as portrayed in Game of Thrones. Having it, having Sansa then being acclaimed as Queen of the North was really satisfying to me. I was really kind of feeling emotional about it. And I and I, I know I have this this terrible, completely undeserved reputation of being a Sansa hater. Um, Which I love. People who like weren't super familiar with your social media profile before we started the podcast are so confused by that. <laughs> They're like, why is Jeff always saying that? He seems to like Sansa just fine. <laughs> but of course, that's the other great aspect, as, as Chloe, a.k.a. Lies and Arbor from Girls Gun Cannon pointed out, that you yourself had that same kind of meta arc with Sansa Stark. Yeah. That you yourself have come around to loving her over the years. And at the same time, George came to love her more over the years, it seems like, and, and develop her into more of a character. And I remember saying back in the, the wild and crazy Tumblr days of 2015, which <laughs> is like the, the Wild West era of my particular fandom, when I was just starting out after reading your stuff and Stephen Atwell's stuff. And I, w- I would talk about sometimes that how I, I thought about how obviously John and Danny were doing a lot of direct leadership stuff in the series, but I, I didn't really see them taking over as the big leader on Endgame. And then I felt like in the wings, Sansa was actually being set up more for that. And some people liked that. Some people thought that was ridiculous back in the day, but it does feel like a vindication, not just an aha, I was right. I'm going to go back and find those Tumblr assholes mm-hmm. and sh- show them what's up kind of vindication, but vindication that this character had the depth I thought she could and can get to the place I thought she could because a lot of the arguments against it weren't just oh no I think Sansa's going to go in this direction it would be oh no Sansa's not important the way you think or saying she's important she's not going to have that major role upon Endgame she might be dead or she might just be in the background and that's 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 just there there is there is a real catharsis to that that I did not expect going into this episode I didn't I was expecting her just to end up as Lady of Winterfell honestly I didn't think she was going to be crowned not to admit being wrong about season eight, because of course our predictions were 100% accurate and perfect. 
but that was a uh, a real catharsis that I'm still I'm still feeling, and that not not in a bittersweet way, in a purely sweet way. Yeah, I think that's that's really great that you have that catharsis there, and I I feel catharsis too, and I'm very happy to be wrong, you know. As <laughs> you know, he said it, folks. I said we finally it. got him to say he it. Finally got me to say it. Now, what about you, sir? What were, what were your uh, big highlights for the episode? So I, I, I liked a lot of this episode, loved parts of it as well. Uh, the, the stuff I'm going to pull out are specifically not related to the anchor points because I did love some of the anchor points in the end states of the characters. But I did really like the Drogon burning the Iron Throne scene. That was really good and neat. And I was happy to have, you know, the confirmation that the Iron Throne won't exist at the end of the series. I thought that was that was really, really cool. And, you know, I, I liked a lot about what was portrayed in Kit Harington's scene with Tyrion. And I really believe that it was his best performance scene on Game of Thrones. Now, we will talk about what was actually portrayed there and the lines of dialogue and the thematic message that was being portrayed. Emmett is going to talk about that specifically. But I do think that it was well acted and well performed and especially done by Kit Harrington. So really, really good. And then finally, controversially, I adored the Brienne writing Jamie's entry and even including the line, die defending his queen. And I know, crucify him, they'll shout as I say that. <laughs> but I... It's true to who Jamie is as a character. I, I think that Brienne is both the most honest, honorable character, most honest, honorable knight, anyways, for A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. And she, but she wrote a touching kind of tribute to the man that she loved in the form of Jamie Lannister, and that was really, really cool. And of course, I did love Sir Brienne of Tarth being the Lord Milady Commander of the uh, of the Kingsguard. That was a really, really great touch and final moment for her arc. I love that. And sitting on the small council. And yeah, I thought that scene was great because she didn't lie about Jamie, but nor did she get into really what happened, you know, which I think is the appropriate balance for Brienne. She wasn't pretending that Jamie was different than he was, but she was still trying to find the most satisfying and and sympathetic possible spin on the kind of ugly decisions he made near the end. And I thought that was perfectly appropriate. I mean, we talk so much about the Jamie-Brienne relationship as Jamie looking at Brienne as this, you know, better version of himself or this more fully realized articulation of the values he used to have. And plenty of people, of course, have written tons about Jamie and Brienne over the years far more articulately than I can. But I think we don't talk as much about how Brienne looks back and about what Brienne thinks about Jamie. And Brienne thinks about Jamie as something more complicated than just her new love interest. You know, she thinks about him as this kind of sad cautionary tale and this wounded lion and someone with this damaged soul she wants to help but doesn't know if she can. And that's really important for her character because otherwise she might be a little too perfect in the same way that Davos without Stannis might be a little too perfect. You know what I mean? You need to you need to have these Jiminy Cricket-esque characters engage with the real stuff, the darkness and the human soul and have an answer for it. And sometimes they don't always. One of the things I love about Davos' story is that a lot of arguments Melisandre makes, he doesn't really have an answer for. Like she'll make this, you know, sinuous ethical argument. And, he, and he's like, well, that sounds wrong, but I can't really argue <laughs> against your logic. And and that's important. I think you see that with Brienne too, that she wants to make some meaning out of Jamie's life, which is different than saving him or redeeming him. And I, I love that scene. I agree with Elsa. You said I thought Kit was, I think, overall really good in this episode. Um, I, I still don't think he ever quite had the spark with Amelia Clark that, that would have brought the relationship up to the genuine tragic Shakespearean level it wanted to be. Instead, I watched the relationship and was just kind of going, oh, that's supposed to be a tragic Shakespearean relationship. <laughs> I get it. I didn't really feel it ever. But Kit himself in isolation, I thought, was awesome in this episode. Peter Dinklage was awesome. Having them both interact and just do so much facial work of, like, feeling negative emotions and then trying to suppress them and then failing. Yeah. Like, that's what's constantly was going on in their faces, trying to move past it and realizing, I can't, I can't move past what I've seen here. They both did a great job. And, yeah, Drogon burning the Iron Throne was awesome. I, I mean – 
people have done that, like the literal nitpick, like, you know, why would he do that instead of burning John? And I get it, but like the, there was one situation where like the metaphor is so strong and good that I'm willing to look past that because you know, Dro- Drogon at some level sensing that it wasn't John who destroyed Danny, but the throne I think is, is really powerful. And this, this image of like the throne itself is like the real antagonist. That's the throne is the final boss, not the person sitting on the throne. It wouldn't matter who was sitting on the throne. The throne itself is the problem. And as, as many people have pointed out, of course, already that the Drogon has constantly compared to Balerion, the Black Dread, especially in the books. And it was Balerion who forged the Iron Throne in the first place. And now another big old black Targaryen dragon has broken it apart. That's perfect. Or the, you know, the way it looked visually was so strong to how the, the destruction of the ring looked in the aforementioned movie Return of the King, which of course holds up those, the strong Iron Throne equals the one ring parallels that people have been talking about forever, but especially recently on the show. So yeah, all, all of that is great stuff. I, again, I, I rewatched, the, I always enjoy episodes of Game of Thrones more when I watch them the second time. I don't know if it's because the divorce from the weight of expectations or whatever, but all, all of that stuff stood out really strongly when I, I rewatched it today, more so even than when I watched it last night. But we do have some lowlights to address. And the one I'll address first is the character and adaptation of Lord Edmure Tully. Hooray! Tobias Menzies is back in Game of Thrones Season 8. We haven't seen him since Season 6 when he was a dirty, uh, I guess, member of an early 90s grunge band. Um, I guess he was kind of, he looked like the bassist from Soundgarden, I guess is probably the best way to put him. No, and now he's back. And I was excited to see him at first because I like Tobias Menzies a lot as just an actor. And Ed Mir is one of my my favorite minor character in the, characters in the books. And I, I gather you feel the same way. I, I love Ed Mir. He's only done one thing wrong in his entire life, similar to his sister Catelyn. So I, I, I love Ed Mir to tears. I love how he is in the books, how he says when Catelyn asks him, like, where did all these people come from? Why are they all here in A Clash of Kings? And he says, they're my people. They were afraid. And he brings them all into River Run to safeguard them from Time and Lannister and the horrors of war. And that's really powerful stuff and I think speaks to overall themes in leadership that people should be aspiring to. However, in Game of Thrones, Edmure Tully is a fucking punchline. And it just drives me nuts. Now, I, I get it. He's not a major character. The adaptation process for Edmure Tully was not similar to a character like Tyrion, which both Emma and I have written about, where Tyrion's essential characteristics were changed in earlier seasons, resulting in some major issues, I think, in later seasons, especially this this season in particular. But Edmure was adapted similarly in that he wasn't done well. He's essentially a punchline, like I said. He's a guy that we're supposed to laugh at. He makes, he's stupid. He's a goofball. Look at this guy. He thinks he could be king of the, he could be, King of the King of Westeros, no fucking way! Like he's ridiculous. Sit down, Uncle. Sit down, Uncle. Which re- reminded me so strongly of a scene in that very same set, the Dragon Pit scene in season seven, which is such a great scene, except for when Euron shows up to be a bad punchline, and now Edmure's the Euron. Right. He's the goofball one who doesn't know things, and we're supposed to laugh at, which was annoying enough when it was Euron, but it's really an insult when it comes to Edmure, because as you say, he has this amazing line in the books: "My people, they were afraid," which stands out so strongly in the in the series that's focuses so much on the nobility not feeling that sense of responsibility and believing they don't have a social contract with the peasants and the peasants aren't even human beings with some of the more extreme examples they can do whatever they want to them and Edmure doesn't feel that way and he doesn't feel that way just instinctively like I love how he says it to Catelyn my people they were afraid like it's obvious like he didn't even have to think about it like he shouldn't have to think about it like this is my responsibility and I did it and that's wonderful and yeah Edmure in the books is also kind of a goof who's like, you know, notorious for not being able to get it up and is always <laughs> still trying to go around and getting laid. And like, he, he seems to be very easy, easily, like manipulated by wanting his father to love him and his friends to think he's cool. But I think those go hand in hand with his more admirable side, because 
what, what it suggests, and I think Stephen Atwell has talked about this before, that Edmure would just be such a great dude if he'd been born as anything but heir to a castle. Like, that's really what kind of ruined him, is those responsibilities he's not necessarily up for. But as just a person with a human heart, he's, 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 he's an angel. Right. So if he'd, been, if he'd been born just like an innkeep somewhere, he would have made his friends and his family very happy and would never have to, like, accidentally screw up a giant military <laughs> strategy the way he did in, in canon. So I feel like the show just seized on the one aspect of, oh, he's kind of silly, and that's all his character is. So, so to watch that reduction and to watch him scoff at the notion of democracy, which I'm sure Edmure would do in the books too. I'm, you know, he's a man of his class, but specifically when you have that attribute of him in the books caring about his people and that making him sympathetic, to, to have that taken away and reversed, that, that did leave a bad taste in my mouth too. It did, but you know, Edmure is still a minor character in the grand scheme of things, and that is a more minor nitpick about this episode itself. And I do have to admit that I did laugh when Sansa told him to sit the fuck down in the every that, episode. That was a good Sansa moment for sure. Like that, you you could see here how she kind of developed to that point, which is wonderful because you look back at early Sansa and she's just you know so right rightfully afraid to say anything because she's surrounded by likes of Joffrey and Cersei, and now she can speak up in, in public, so that's nice. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what comes of Edmure left in the books. I think he's going to have a kind of a, a rough road ahead being a part of the Stoneheart Brotherhood plot, but I hope he gets a happy ending. In the books. I hope so too. But again, George has talked about how minor and secondary character and states in the books will likely be different from the show. So God, I hope he picks it through the prologue from the winds of winter. I really, really hope he makes it out alive. But again, like I was saying, Edmure is a minor character and the adaptation for him was done in such a way that they just focused on one aspect. However, in the case of Tyrion Lannister, his adaptation as a character, and that of Jon Snow as well, has been quite different. Something we will talk about at significant length in our June Patreon episode that we are saying so many times before. But the dialogue in that scene where Jon and Tyrion are interacting after Daenerys has had Tyrion arrested, I, I thought was particularly strong. And I, was, and I didn't come away feeling like anything other than it was strong. However, Emmett, you on Twitter signaled and pointed out something to me that, that totally escaped my glance because, you know, I'm a, I'm a person of, of non, I don't know how, non-Jewish Jewish, Jewish birth or... Non-Jewish extraction. I, I, right. I'm a person of non-Jewish extraction on, as you guys might know, but I think it's really vital, the points that you were making about this scene and about something particular about how this interacts with our real world history. Well, thank you, sir, for saying so. And it... Yeah, so I'm, I'm Jewish. I don't really talk about it much. I'm not particularly directly religious in terms of, of belief in, in God or an afterlife. That's not something that's a huge part of my life. I don't, I don't actively go to synagogue, but it is, it is a huge part of who I am. And it does impact how I relate to everything, how I think about politics and art and history and like my sense of humor and like so much gets filtered through that. And it's, it's, it's how I think about my family history and, and, you know, just, just my position in the world and how I relate to groups that, that aren't of that way. And I think that's true for a lot of Jewish people. I mean, there's always jokes about how, you know, all Jews are basically atheists. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of just kind of secular aspect to that culture. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't take away from the intensity of the feeling for a lot of us. And, and there was just a moment in, in this particular episode that was a real, a real, a real gut punch to me in that regard. It, it, was, it was the invocation of the famous uh, first they came... Uh, a speech by Martin Niemöller, a, a former uh, clergyman in, in Germany during the rise of Adolf Hitler, who initially supported Hitler's rise and then gave this whole speech that's been translated in various forms, some of them n not so well. 
about about the kind of the process of living under the Nazi regime and realizing that eventually you were going to be targeted. And uh, the, the rough rough translation of it is: first they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I think it's pretty inarguable that they were making a direct allusion to this in the John Tyrion scene in question when Tyrion was talking about, yes, Danny came for the slavers first and they were evil men, so no one said anything. And then she went on to this area and killed those guys, but they were evil men and making the implication that it, it inevitably ended in King's Landing. And look, I mean, I don't demand that anyone share my take on this. Again, it's very specific to me and my background and how I think about this sort of thing. But this... This really made me angry. It left me with a very bad taste in my mouth regarding the show as a, as a whole and what it has to say about power. I think it was just a, a staggeringly tasteless and thoughtless historical reference because for a number of reasons. First of all, like the, the people that, that Niemöller is talking about are marginalized for, for you know, I mean, you, you may not like communists, but there's, there, you know, it's, it's a marginalized group within that society. It's, it's easy to target. He's bringing them up because they came for the communists and I didn't speak out because no one cares about them. They're just the communists. They're just the trade unionists. They're just the Jews. Just ship them off to the camps. No one cares. And that can happen because they are powerless, because they can be separated and, and manipulated by state power. And that's just such a grossly inaccurate comparison to slave masters, which is what the show was doing. Like... Regardless of what you think about Danny, what she was doing when she was going up against the slave masters in Essos, that, those were genuine at, attempts at liberation. There's, there's not the most sympathetic reading of the Nazi war machine in Europe can be described that way. That's not even what they said they wanted to do. They were interested in this brutal racial hierarchy and inflicting it upon the rest of the planet. And they, they weren't as blatant about it early on as they were later, but they were never subtle about it. And that's just such a completely different relationship than Danny going around freeing slaves. And to equate them, I just think is is is, is just gross on a number of levels. Because Danny isn't Danny isn't a Nazi. She had a tragic downfall. The Nazis didn't. Like think through think through the implications of what you're saying there. That this character you're equating to the Nazis, especially with that Nuremberg rally like look to her her big victory speech. There's def they're definitely going for Nazi comparisons there. Think about what you're saying when you're presenting Danny as someone who had good intentions, but then tragically went too far, and now she's a Nazi. Because there are people who still talk about the Nazis that way. There's this woman, Candace Owens, who is kind of a well-known influencer, media personality, grifter. She's a grifter, and, and she gets a lot of attention by, by saying wild things. And one of the wild things she got attention for saying is that, you know, if all Hitler wanted to do was make Germany great again, fine, he wouldn't have a problem. It's when he started going to other countries— and causing problems there. His, his, his nationalism was fine. And, and you're shaking your head. And it's, it's disgusting and ridiculous, but people still believe it. Influential people still say it. And a lot of people nod their heads. And that's the, that's the same point they were making in the show. I don't know if they were intentionally trying to make it, but that's the point they made. Danny is Nazi. Danny is having a tragic downfall. You, you just... That, that comparison is, is, just, is just insulting because it's equating the people murdered in the Holocaust, including my people, my relatives to the slave masters of Essos, which is how the Nazis would talk about the Jews, that they were these like elites manipulating everything. And, and, and that dialogue in the show just, just played right into that. Again, I'm not saying that Benioff and Weiss hate Jews. Of course, they, they're, they're, they're both Jewish. I'm not saying they, they hate their own people. I'm saying I think they unthinkingly passed along something that we see in a lot of American media and politics for that matter, which is using the Holocaust as this lazy shortcut to make what you're saying important. If I compare things to, to the concentration camps and to Hitler, it gives me gravitas that I did in no way earned. And that's, that's, a, that's a fucking insult, man, because it's, this is not just 
something in a museum to stare at and stroke your chin. For me, you're my people. It's something real that happened that could just as easily happen again. We, we say never again about the Holocaust, but that's not true. We, we support states that, that have a, a apartheid regimes in this world. We, we cut off migrants for religious reasons, just as we did during the Holocaust. And I, I just think that that's such a, a lazy, cheap way to use the history when, when there's, there's better versions available. Because I don't like to say you shouldn't have done this terrible move without suggesting what I think would have worked better. And, you know, you have Danny saying she basically burned down King's Landing in order to save it. Compare her to the American government in, in Vietnam. Hell, the showrunner said that something they were going for with the destruction of King's Landing was the Dresden firebombing. And I just smacked my head thinking about that now because that was the Allies, guys. Do you not realize that that wasn't the Nazis? That was the Allies on German soil? Like, the power of the, of the Dresden firebombing by the Allies— the, the way the reason that's so important, the reason like Kurt Vonnegut built Slaughterhouse Five, his most beloved book, around that event, was it shows that while the Allied powers were of course far superior to the Nazis in every respect, that didn't make them angels coming in to save everybody. Like you know, Churchill was going to fight the Nazis and gave big inspirational speeches, but he also was partially responsible for starving and killing a whole bunch of people in India. And Roosevelt and Churchill happily stood there and shook hands and took photos with Stalin, who has a whole lot of blood on his hands. So I, I feel like they, I wish they'd gone in that direction. Something a little more insidious, like, hey, Danny is this tragic downfall. Danny is like, you know, your, your people, your government, your country. You may think of yourself as the great American government and the great allies, but you too can be seen as doing something like the firebombing of Dresden. But instead they went for the Nazis. And I just, I know I'm rambling in a variety of ways here, but that's, that's that, it was just disappointing to me on a whole a whole number of levels, and I know when when I say stuff like this or when someone else says stuff like this, that I lost a bunch of followers on Twitter as soon as I started talking about it, and I, I think it's in part because people just don't want to hear this stuff or they think of it as like just attention seeking, like I'm doing this to make everything about me, the, the Jewish victim, and bring up my identity, and that's again I don't talk about this stuff much, and and it I I brought it up because it it, it physically viscerally hurt. When it happened, when I realized the comparison they were drawing and the implications that they were they were spelling out, it was just like someone had just reasoned to my chest and squeezed, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't expect to be disappointed like this." I knew there were things about this episode I might not like that wouldn't pay off in a way that I liked. You know, we talked about this with season eight, but I did not expect to feel just insulted and have my family and my people insulted uh, to that respect. And you know, as I've said, unthinking evocations of the Holocaust are a dime a dozen in American culture. And that's, that's just, it was, this was just another example of that. And it was just upsetting to like be in a room full of people who were just like cheering and talking and, you know, having fun watching the episode for that, through that and realizing, Oh, I'm the only one who noticed that. And I don't know if I'm the only, was the only Jewish person in the room, but I could definitely feel I was the only person who, who realized that in that moment. And that just made me feel just really alone. And really kind of isolated and sad in a way that I didn't expect going in. So I am not, to be very clear, I am not calling anyone a Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer if they liked the episode or if they didn't notice that or even if they don't care about it. But I have to explain that that's the experience I felt. I felt my skin crawling during that. It was, it was, I think it was a, a genuinely appalling decision on their part to try to pump up Daenerys this way as a character. I think they went way off base and it is definitely going to color how I feel about this episode and the show as a whole. Yeah. Then, and now I've said my piece. No, I think it's an important thing to say. And I, I agree with you. And I, you know, I feel like that kind of the people that you're in the room with and that I, it escaped, it totally escaped my, my, my thinking just because that is not what my background is. I'm, like I said, I'm not of Jewish extraction. Um, but I think that it's important to have those 
reminders here that the words and the dialogue and the character moments and the plot points aren't existing within a cultural vacuum. It's not the now I guess people can watch Game of Thrones and just come away with it thinking, well, I'm just watching a fantasy show about tits and dragons and stuff like that. And that can be one way of evaluating the culture that you live in. But I don't think that is what we're supposed to do with culture. I don't think that we're supposed to look at it as simply pure entertainment. It's supposed to be evaluated in the lens of the real world. And I think what you bring up about how that first they came invocation really speaks to things in the real world. And I understand, and I'm, I'm here to support you, of course, as always, about how that's just devastating. I mean, and uh, in so many emotional ways and in so many historical ways. And I think you're right, too, that they had other people or things that they could have based it off of. I mean, I in, in my synopsis, as goofy as it was in the synopsis, and if, in case you weren't catching it, if you aren't that familiar with uh, American politics in the 2003 time frame and a little bit before that and the invasion of, of Iraq, I, I kind of felt like par- partially they were going for the Nuremberg rally there, but they also had Daenerys being like, we're going to liberate the entire world. And I, I distinctly remember people of a more liberal interventionist slash neoconservative bent were kind of saying the same thing. Like, first, we'll start with Afghanistan, then we'll go to Iraq, then we'll go to Iran, then we'll go to Syria, then we'll go to all of these places. We're going to liberate the entire goddamn world. And I'm not utterly unsympathetic to that impulse of wanting to help people who are in need and in dire straits. And sometimes that violence is one way to Gosh, I'm going to get myself in so much trouble. That, but but there, you're getting into the conflict, which is present when you talk about that impulse. I think there is a genuine struggle and you can see some sympathetic ideas. And while I certainly – I think the Iraq war was a terrible idea from the start and only got worse, there is, I think, a, a genuine, if misguided, human impulse you can find that you just can't find with Adolf freaking Hitler. It's it's just not there and it never was. And I think that's, that's something that – you know, we talked about it before that one, one of the things that – works really well in A Song of Ice and Fire with a character like Danny or Stannis is that you're supposed to see yourself in them when they take, make big mistakes and do terrible things. You're supposed to think to yourself, wow, could I be talked into doing that? Could I follow my values down that road? And it's something that we can find in all of us. Like there's a TV reviewer who does a lot of work on Game of Thrones. Let's call him Khan Shalins. Like his politics a lot and they're very left wing. But back in the day, he strongly supported the invasion of Iraq. Got to go in and help a lot of people who are just suffering brutally under Saddam's you know, regime. And there were a lot of people who were supporting that war who weren't just going, yeah, let's go in and get the oil and kill all the brown people. I mean, there were some people like that, but there were a lot of people who had much more nobler impulses and come from a much more human place who nevertheless got talked into something that turned out really disastrous. And I just think that's that's the kind of story I'm interested in, not they turn out to be world's, the history's greatest monster in disguise. I just, there are so few characters for whom that's going to be appropriate. You know what I'm saying? Like having a character turn out to be Hitler as soon as you start doing that in a serious dramatic context, you end you end up tripping up yourself. You end up making these comparisons that are really horrifying when you think about it. So that's why you should look for less extreme, more humane, more insidious comparisons, because that's what brings out the humanity. In isolation, it's a few lines of dialogue in this episode. As I said, overall, 99% of this episode I really loved. But it did get at, at a certain a certain shallowness to how this, this show has kind of handled politics and, and history in general, that I think has been one of its more disappointing aspects. And, you know, it's people have said this before about how it handles race. And I think 
I think we should listen to them, even if it doesn't match up with our own experiences. And I thank you for listening to me, even as it doesn't sync up with, with your own experience, because I'm not trying to impose this on anyone or change anyone's take. And it's important to me because of my personal background, because I was I was raised with that that speech from Martin from Martin E. Moeller. And I was, I was raised specifically that this is why you stick up for other people getting screwed over, even if they got nothing in common with you. This is why you stick up for them, because you have things in common with them and you bond together and you can protect each other. Applying that to, to slavers. Like, I get it that they're slavers or human beings, too, or whatever they're going for with that. But that's, I'm sorry, that's that's just appalling. And, you know, they had a really good potential reference point in their own internal Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones universe. And that's Robert's Rebellion, as we've talked about in the main chapter-by-chapter episode, where the rebellion started for noble reasons. It started as a way to overthrow a bad, monstrous king and his regime. And what was the end state of that rebellion was dead children being laid at the feet of Robert Baratheon and Robert declaring them to be dragon spawn and Ned's horror at that and you know Tyrion can could and should have worked in a similar fashion in that he could have related that yes Robert and Ned went to war for the for the right reasons they were noble they were just it's absolutely justified Robert's rebellion was not based on a lie and then my father Tywin came in and made it the made the war about human rights abuses and the worst types of atrocities we can imagine that's how they really should have reframed danny's destruction of king's landing and her speech thereafter that the noble the nobility of her cause was being undercut by the by the atrocities being committed both in her name by folks like gray Worm and the unsullied as well as daenerys targaryen herself and her destruction of the city so that's really i think that would be a more powerful in-universe reference that would speak to real world things that both them and i were talking about something like the iraq war something like world war ii on the allied perspective which started from more noble virtuous perspectives and then ended up souring and resulting in the deaths and in the in the mass deaths of innocence in both those wars you can't tell a tragic story about the corruption of good ideals and then make a nazi comparison because that suggests that you either have a terrible misunderstanding of who the Nazis were, or, and I think this is more likely, you don't really care, and you're just going, you're going for the easy shorthand of dramatic and evil that your that your audience will understand. And I just that's that's as I said, that's a way a lot of artists and a lot of politicians and a lot of people in general use the Holocaust, and I I just think that's not cool. So thank you so much, Jeff, for listening to me respectfully on that count. I, I really appreciate. Having a, having a good dialogue on that because it, it, it's easy to have a bad one. So I appreciate that. So of course, you. your perspective is incredibly valuable to me. I mean, I think that you've said so many nice things about me and I don't nearly reciprocate that as much as I should. And I think that... That's not true at all, Jeff. You're very kind. But I mean, it's, it's not just like your Song of Ice and Fire work and your analyses and your excellent writing that and your excellent podcast voice too that kind of gravitates towards me, but also your grappling with real-world issues. I mean, most of you guys know that Emma and I don't really agree on politics. I mean, I think 90... I don't even... I can't even calculate like it necessarily. But at the same time, I do think that your perspective is not just a good one, but is invaluable to enhancing my own and to kind of bringing out in my wildest fantasy a better world in the long term in our small little community that we have here. So I really appreciate it, and I think that's really valuable what you shared, and it's helped to inform my perspective. So thank you, as always, for doing that for me. Well, Jeff, when the revolution comes, I think I will not put you up against the wall after all. <laughs> I'll, I'll go second or third. But I think that about uh, sums up our highlights and lowlights for the episode. So we wanted to move on now, as we have been, in our coverage of Game of Thrones Season 8, to the big anchor points of the episode, the, the ones that caused the most discussion and clearly the ones that were that the episode was built around. 
So as if you guys remember from last week in our review of the Bells, we were asked a question as to what we think is the third holy shit moment of Game of Thrones as revealed by George R. R. Martin to David Benioff and Dan Weiss in 2013. And we both came to the conclusion that John killing Daenerys would be the third holy shit moment that they never saw coming. And boy, did we get to see that come into fruition here in this episode. Yay. 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 Yay, we're right. Yay, we're right. Oh my God. Very sad at the same time. Now, like Emma was saying, and I agree with this, I think that the chemistry wasn't necessarily there for John and Danny throughout from season seven onwards. But I do see where this event itself had an emotional impact. And I did feel something at the end of it. I felt something even if I didn't necessarily feel the characters. So I felt something at the event, but not the characters. So I I don't know, but this event also caused a lot of consternation in the fandom. A lot of folks who were sympathetic to Daenerys Targaryen or sympathetic to Jon Snow kind of came with this came away disbelieving that this is going to happen in the books that oh my god Dan, Daenerys Targaryen being killed by Jon Snow that's that's awful that would never happen Jon is so noble Danny is so good is that are those people right to feel that this thing is not going to happen in the books or do they have invalid reasons for feeling this way I think there are plenty of valid reasons to be upset by this I don't think the show did a particularly effective job of making the argument that I was trying to make that Danny is categorically worse than everyone else in her class, especially given that her uh, they don't get to choose argument about people who think differently than her is echoed by the supposedly more benevolent Council of Lords who laugh at the concept of letting the small folk vote. Like, really? They're all so much better than her? That that argument, I think, failed a little bit for me. And it goes hand in hand with the aforementioned Nazi comparisons, which is it's less interesting to put Danny on this pedestal and say she is the worst of the worst. We got to get rid of her. It's I think it's more interesting to say, hey, she did all these horrible things and she's still kind of similar to the people we love. She could be similar to us in the right circumstances. I think that's more powerful and generally fits with what George has said is kind of his thematic inspiration in the song of ice and fire it also does feel like fridging to a certain extent if you're not familiar with the term it came out of uh, 90s comics discussions about how often like the girlfriend characters of the main heroes were, were killed off in like the horrible grotesque ways for, really for nothing to do with their character but purely to inspire like ennui and and darkness in, in the male characters and that this was just kind of a, a lazy thing to do to female characters and dispiriting for women who read the comics and for women who created comics, Gail Simone, the, the amazing uh, comics writer, kind of popularized that term in the late 90s. And I think that's a fair critique, but it also reflects back on when the story was conceived. It was conceived before fridging was a term. It was con- conceived in the early 90s when that kind of thing in comics was was happening a lot. So that is neither to say that Martin gets a pass, nor is it to say he's some sort of irredeemable misogynist, but that he he, like all of us, are products of the soup we swim in. And I, I think when he was writing that series, it didn't occur to him that that might not be the best thing to do with Daenerys' character. But I do think that some version of this is entirely possible in the books. The the Azor Ahai Nissa Nissa myth may well be set up for it, where Azor Ahai sorrowfully kills uh, his beloved wife to save the world. There is the potential that the third treason from the House of the Undying, the treason for love, may we may be seeing some version of this with John. I know we both have our own painstaking versions of what the treasons might be. But this this is definitely a candidate for one of them now. And as many people have talked about, you need some kind of scouring of the Shire element in A Song of Ice and Fire. That's the part that's my favorite part of The Lord of the Rings. George has suggested that's his favorite part of Lord of the Rings. This idea that you've you've won the war, but there's still something missing, something goes wrong at the end that prevents a perfectly happy ending and makes it more bittersweet. And it does make sense, especially given how George loves both realism and romanticism, that this scouring element will be rooted in John and Danny's tragic love, that there is just so much set up for in the books. 
I, I think it will likely occur after they defeat the others together. Again, you have the big showdown with the big bad and then this kind of smaller, bittersweet climax afterwards. Uh, I still don't think, as we've said before, that Cersei or young Griff or anyone else will be hanging out to take down at that point. I think the dynamic is going to be a little different. I think maybe Danny wants to like reforge the Iron Throne after after the others are defeated and like start the whole thing over again. Maybe she wants to repeat Aegon's conquest. Maybe she like her father Eris had that dream of like building a perfect white marble city. Maybe she'll say to John like we can go back to the ruins of King's Landing. I'm gonna build I'm gonna build a new city. I'm gonna make it perfect, and you and me can can rule it together. And John has to decide, okay, am I willing to do that if it means just letting go what she's already done? And, and maybe that's that that plays into it. I mean, there are, there are a lot of ways this could play out. But as with a lot of things in season eight, I think there are valid reasons to not like the execution. But I think the foundational element strikes me as being from the books. And I agree with you. I like that scene, even though I'm not huge on the chemistry, because part of it didn't even feel like grand tragic romance. It felt pathetic in a way that I liked. It felt just kind of like, oh, this is just wretched. And neither of these people are grand, dramatic, larger than life figures. They're both just kind of confused, sad people. Who, who don't really know what's going on anymore and are just are just are just kind of lashing out and going step by step and barely even thinking about the next day and like and, and hysterically enough Drogon is the one who understands what it all means Drogon, Drogon gets the metaphor more than even John and Danny do and I actually I actually like that tone I like the tone a lot as well but I'm also with you that I don't think the setup is going to be similar in the books again we're coming to the plot end states of what we're seeing in A Dream of Spring without the necessary both character and plot points to get to those end states. So I do like your version a lot better than what we saw on screen, that perhaps Daenerys has this moment where she's thinking about rebuilding King's Landing or reforging the Iron Throne. I do also maybe like the idea, too, that Daenerys Targaryen, after defeating the White Walkers or helping to defeat the White Walkers, then embarks on this idea that, yes, my destiny is much grander than even I imagined, that even what the House of the Undying told me, that the White Walkers have been defeated, Westeros, Cersei, and Young Griff have been vanquished. Now I must go forward and do this to the entire world and liberate the entire world. And John, after having witnessed the explosive firepower, literally, of Daenerys and her dragons, then goes, I, I, I don't think I can let this happen. I think, like, You've let your destiny drive you towards a place that is really bad for the whole world, and that is going to result in the deaths of a lot of innocents. And something that gets that doesn't get nearly enough mention about Jon Snow as a character in the books is that Jon is very much concerned, in especially in the Dance with Dragons, about the protection of individual innocents over the greater whole. And I do wonder whether his quote redemption in Winds in a Dream of Spring is going to be his realization that he can't necessarily protect that. I I do wonder whether his, his revelation and his plot resolution and his redemption arc, if you want to call that, in a Dream of Spring in the Winds of Winter, is him recognizing that he needs to protect the greater whole at the expense of the individuals. And I see that being something that we see here, where John realizes that he can't protect Daenerys Targaryen. And if he does protect her, if he doesn't do this one thing that will kill his tragic, that will kill his love, that will destroy any feelings of romance and warmth within him, then he is endangering millions, potentially millions of individuals around the world itself. So I think that would be a really cool way that George does it. But again, like I said, I and like Emmett said, I think this is 
exactly what's going to, I, I personally think this is exactly what's going to happen in A Dream of Springs, that John is going to kill Danny. I think you're more, like, you see it more probably as, as occurring that way. Um, I, I like, I, I do like the idea of it being a Nissa Nissa thing, but I think you've said it best in the past in that Nissa Nissa is more a story for Stannis and Stannis sacrificing Shireen in order to become a Zora High Reborn in his own mind. Now, again, that story archetype exists to fit multiple characters ranging from motherfucking Victorian Greyjoy to Stannis Baratheon to Jon Snow potentially. So I'm not saying that the architecture isn't there to kind of fit Jon and Danny's story into it. But I do think it's more specifically meant in the story to be a Stannis Shireen parallel. I think there, John's story will more echo in some ironic ways, the Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa story. Like, I love the framework we're describing where it's not Azor Ahai killing Nissa Nissa to save the world so he can forge a magic sword to stop the others. It's Azor Ahai killing Nissa Nissa to save the world because Nissa Nissa herself is about to burn the world down. Like, that's a really interesting twist. And I think you see, like, the Azor Ahai Nissa Nissa stuff has never really played completely straight in the story. And the character who wants to play it straight, Melisandre, is, dem- is being demonstrated as wrong and dangerous for wanting to do that. Like, Victarion... He had his own version of, of brutally murdering the person he loved, his his third wife, and he was sobbing while he was doing it, sorrowful like Azor High, but it had nothing to do with saving the world. It was about his own personal pride and sexual ego regarding his brother Euron. So you see, there's always a little twist that has something to do with the character and the character's particular flaws and backstories and what they bring to the table. So I think we could be seeing a version of that with, with, with John and Danny carrying out the, the Azor High. Nissa Nissa myth. And yeah, I love what you're talking about with Danny letting her destiny get a, get ahead of her. Because again, there has to be this relatable element to Danny. There has to still be something appealing about her. And I was watching the like the first part of this episode and like the tone was very strong. I love the camera work. I love seeing King's Landing and I like the horrors just in the glimpse of your eye. All great stuff. But like I was watching Danny. I'm like, why is anyone following her at this point who's not just like a robot? Like who is listening to the speech and not recoiling in horror at this point? Like it, it's just, it's just, it was just a little much. And I think Danny in the books will have, there will be an appeal to her pitch. There'll be something that John is tempted by and that he kind of wants to do and that he has to, he has to reject. And as you say, kind of kill that part of him in, in order to, 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 to serve the greater good. And so part of me thinks like, yeah, Danny will talk about wanting to rebuild something like let's rebuild King's Landing together, you and me, and we'll make it the city it always was or always, always should have been. And then John has to say, no, that kind of utopian, let's fix everything dream, as good as it sounds, even though it's good intentions, you, you do realize that you're, you have to build your foundation on something and it's going to be a lot of skulls. And it's it's like an ironic echo of Winterfell with its crypts, the bones beneath the ground. And now King's Landing is going to be like a much more horrible version of that. And yeah, I think I think that dynamic will play out in a way that I think makes Danny more sympathetic and makes makes John's, de- John's decision more complex. But we got a, we got a couple of questions on, on this regard. One from a Lady Vanessa C., a sworn sword patron and a, a big fan of Daenerys Targaryen, who's always written very eloquently and emotionally about her character. And she, and she's also, as we've said before, one of the, one of the best artists in the fandom, really without without peer as far as portraits go. I think. Uh, and she asked, "I posted this on Twitter, but I'll share again here just in case. I'd love to hear your opinions on Tyrion's arc in the books versus the show, especially his likely heavily involvement in King's Landing's destruction. If that comes at the end of the story like it does on the show, how does that affect his endgame?" I know your opinions opinions on the order of events differ, but I can't see him becoming hand after helping destroy a city and thousands of innocents, not without serious redemption. Thank you, Vanessa, for the question. This is something we've talked about before, and we'll talk about again in our whitewashing episode in June, that Tyrion has this darker element in relationship to destruction in King's Landing and resenting the people of King's Landing that I think is going to pay off stronger in the books than it has in the show. And I think you can see, like, 
I don't know, like the ghost of that in this episode where like Tyrion is walking around horrified and then Bran says you're going to serve for the rest of your life to make up for what you've done. And part of me thinks there's a stronger version of this where Tyrion was responsible. So he's looking at all these dead, including his own family members, and he's not just horrified that his queen did this. He's horrified that he did this. And when when Bran says you have to serve to make up for what you've done, that's what he's talking about. Not killing Shay in season four you know, years ago, or, you know, contributing indirectly somehow to what Danny is doing now. I think that's going to be the real dramatic core. And if there is, is a redemption for Tyrion, I, I can see that being the, 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 the twist of his story, that he's longed for power kind of for its own sake or for getting his family to love him or because he just enjoys it. But now he's going to have to do it even though he doesn't want to as, as, as a service for the people, so many of whom he've killed. So I think Vanessa brings up a great point that uh, Tyrion would need some some serious redemption to to be in a position of power after helping destroy a city. But I think you can I think you can see the framework for that in the show just done differently. If you think about it, like your your idea last week about Tyrion knowing about the caches of wildfire under King's Landing and then giving Daenerys advice to burn King's Landing, thus causing a chain reaction, destroying the city. It, it, in that scenario, Tyrion could claim plausible deniability over his knowledge of the wildfire caches. You know, who would be alive to really contradict him, right? I mean, especially Helene's Guildhall is going to be the first thing that's going to go whoosh in a, you know, massive green wildfire. I mean, maybe Bronn, but especially, but he's probably not going to say shit. That would be a better use for Bronn than we've gotten in the show. But yeah, as you say, there's, I mean, Vanessa is, is framing it as everyone knows Tyrion is responsible. And maybe this is a guilt he only, like, admits to a few people. Right. Like the, like the people in the room, so to speak, in the council. And so that's, that's how he works. Well, I, I also wonder, too, whether like that's like the place where he gets kind of the bitter comeuppance the, internally, though. I, I wonder if he doesn't admit it to anyone at all. Oh, that's interesting, Jeff. I but like there that. is one person who would know Tyrion's culpability. So I'd argue that Bran's line about Tyrion atoning for his, quote, mistakes for the rest of his life. It really still works for Tyrion becoming the Hand of the King with Bran knowing Tyrion's secret and Tyrion working off his debts in the Hand, in hand of the King Purgatory. So it, it, to me, I think it'd be a really fascinating Martinez twist to have Tyrion, quote, escape justice with helping destroy the city while having to atone for the consequences as the adjacent king for the rest of his life. So I think that would be a really interesting way that Martin could address it. I think it'd be more compelling to have Tyrion realize that all of his hatred for his his siblings, his hatred for the King's Landing results in its destruction. And now he's reaping that consequence of his vengeance and he has to deal with that internally. And I wonder if that's what's actually going to finally shake him from that nihilistic outlook he adopts towards the end of a storm of swords and really, really starts to fester its way into a dance with dragons. But we do have... Two final things to talk about. First is Bran Stark becoming the King of Westeros. Then to kind of set us off, I figure I would open it with a question from one of our poor fellow patrons by the name of Sir Woot Gorilla, who asks, King Bran, how? Why? Even in the books, I don't know how that makes sense. You have all these characters on leadership arcs as either failed leaders or successful ones, and in the end, it's Bran? I feel like even in the books, that would be feel that would feel terrible. Like you have either Jon, Tyrion, or Sansa perfectly set up to rule Westeros in the end, and you go with Bran? And then we got another question from Sir Eli M, a sworn sword who asks, Hey guys, I often think back to George's 2014 interview with Rolling Stone, in which he talks about Aragorn and ruling at the end of Lord of the Rings. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned, this is George saying again, became king and reigned for a hundred years and that he was wise and good. But Tolkien doesn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? This has often made me think about how George will end his story. But watching the end of the show, all I can think is how this was exactly the thing he was railing against. 
But whereas King Aragorn made sense and is a character we know and have followed and understand, Bran as a ruler brings up a multitude of questions and makes the future even murkier and concerning, especially with no heirs on the horizon. My question is, how do you think George will avoid the ending of A Dream of Spring, stumbling into the same territory as the show, where the story feels somewhat finished, but overall unresolved as to what happens next and or brings up more questions than answers? Well, those are some deep, dense, detailed questions. And good thing I got Emmett on this podcast, because I would just say, like, um, keep reading, uh, you know, just, you know, keep reading the books, reread the books, reread the books. So what do you think, Emmett, about those questions? Well, reread the books is always a good answer, but... Yeah, I have mixed feelings on this count. I do think there is strong groundwork for King Bran in the books. I've heard a lot of people say this comes completely out of nowhere and has nothing to do with what George has written, and I don't agree with that. Bran is the first POV. He is central to George's original conception of the series. He's written in the King Arthur mold. He's a classic fantasy protagonist every bit as much as Jon. He's the Stark and Winterfell in A Clash of Kings, and, and there and afterwards you can see a real sincerity and sweetness to how Bran approaches his duty to his people, that... He's like sending like sweets at the feast to old man and Hodor for no reason, but he loved them and promising he would pay the little the littles back for hundredfold for every nut and berry that they gave him when he was on the road in Storm of Swords. And obviously that's from a little kid's perspective and it's kind of naive and charming to a certain extent. But it also shows that his heart's in the right place when it comes to the social contract like we were talking about with Edmure, that that, you know, you you live for your people, not just to leech off them. But to, but to protect them and do right for them. And Brand, I think, understands that as an intuitive level. It's in his POV in Storm of Swords that we hear the line, the wolves will come again, about how the Starks will return and set up a good, you know, a good relationship to their people once more. And Brand, I think, is, is indicative of that. But I do think the failure of the five-year gap to function, the proposed five-year leap forward in the story between Storm of Swords and Book 4 that George tried to make happen, I think that collapse may have hurt George's plans in this regard. My guess is he wanted Bran to be roughly the age Rob was when he was crowned in the Game of Thrones or John in the Winds of Winter, you know, in that like 15 to 16 range where it's, you know, young for our world, but in the world of Westeros, like that's the kind of uh, the floor you can be an effective leader and effective ruler at. And as it stands, Bran is like nine in the books, I think. He's maybe going to be 10 by the time it's over. And as it's, so as such, it's hard to see him being active. It, you know, he's probably going to be more of a puppet king if this is indeed Endgame. Uh, that's not really relevant to the show, which has aged up all the Starks, as George honestly should have from the start. So I think there are there are a, a couple couple different problems at work with with how this is executed on the show. I think the show has generally failed to emphasize those themes and images that connect Bran to this Endgame. There hasn't been a lot of Arthurian Fisher King stuff. We didn't really get to see much of him as as the Stark in Winterfell or his relationship to his people. There's not the same emphasis in his story about the the wolves coming again to reclaim House Stark. So he ends up feeling like a stand-in for ideas rather than an articulation of them, if that makes sense. Like, he, he gestures at important themes rather than acting on them. Like, Bran, obviously, who knows how Benioff and Weiss and the writers really feel about these characters. But I'll just say, from watching the show, Bran does not seem to have sparked much interest from the creative elements behind the show compared to other main characters. So as many have noted, the, the meta statement from Tyrion that Bran has had the most interesting story of all felt kind of ridiculous, especially given that he was absent for a whole season. Like, really, his story was so amazing, but he was gone in season five. H- how amazing could his story be if you could just drop him off for a season, guys? So that that part felt a little flat. And I think most importantly, I think I, I see King Bran in the books as a potential like reconciliation between the political and magical sides of the story. Like the Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire coming together and being resolved. Bran brings the knowledge of one into the arena of the other. And we talk a lot about politics and magic as an oppositional dichotomy a lot in the series. And George has as well, to be fair. 
But some of the most interesting parts in the story, I think, are where the two combine. Like Miri Mazdura, as we're about to get into on the, the regular Not a Cast, does blood magic to get revenge for the slaughter and enslavement of her people. Melisandre re- resolves the clash of Baratheon kings with this horrible shadow demon she births. Beric Dondarrion is resurrected again and again to fight on behalf of all people against their oppressors. There are these links between politics and magic that I think make them both more interesting. And King Bran would be like the ultimate synthesis of that. The ultimate guy to say, I've seen the horrors of the magical plot. I'm going to bring what I've learned into the political plot and make things better. And our friend uh, Bookshelf Stud, a.k.a. Michael, uh, who we've had on the, the podcast before for our Dance with Dragons versus Storm of Swords episode, had this great idea of Bran ruling from a weirwood throne on the Isle of Faces at the end of the books. I was like, oh, I love that. The Isle of Faces is a area that's been so connected to like the green men and the old gods and all that magic. Howlin' Reed went there and jo- told Jojen about it. And it's at, you know, it's in the God's Eye Lake, which just as a name and concept fits Bran so well. And it, it's in, I love it, it's in the literal center of the continent, which I think would just would be wonderfully great for Bran to rule from there. So, you know, the show, for many reasons, good and bad, has largely de-emphasized the magical plot and its links to the political plot, especially in season eight. And so you, you get you do get Tyrion saying, like, you know, Bran is our collective memory, so he's best suited to rule. So you do get that allusion to the magical plot there. And I did I did like that part of Tyrion's speech a lot. But I don't think this aspect fully clicked because what it, what it really kind of seemed to boil down to is as he's had a cool story and he doesn't particularly want the throne, so he'll be good at it, that that hoary trope. And it's just, and part of the problem is that Bran as a character is just kind of personality-free in recent seasons. So you don't get the sense of him struggling with this or incorporating this. He just kind of accepts and says, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. That's why I'm here. And all of you were supposed to be here in the exact same place. And it's just, that's not nearly as interesting as the writers seem to think it is. Like the, the, the fact that Bran now sees everyone's chess pieces to be moved. Like if you're going to do that, like that's a good reason not to have Bran in charge because that's really spooky and weird. So I, I, as with John killing Danny, I think the, the foundation is there for that in the books. I think I, I could definitely see that being endgame, especially since George has said that the main character endpoints are going to line up. But uh, I think the way they've written Bran as a whole and the way they've handled the magical plot made this less satisfying than it could have been. I, I do have to agree with you that it, was in, that it wasn't completely satisfying, but I, I still liked it all the same. I, I do think that there is some setup in the books. There was a great essay that was published today by friend of the show, Adam Feldman, called How Brand's First Chapter Sets Up a Far More Compelling Conclusion Than the Show Gave Us, in which he talks about how Brand Stark learning about justice from Ned at the where Garrett is brought before him and learning about that and finding the difference between justice and why Ned himself has to do it and how that might factor into Bran's decision to send John to the Night's Watch, which is again one of those character essays we'll talk a little bit about. I think that's all really, really good stuff. And I think that it's, to me, it, it really felt like a George ending. It really felt like a twist in the story that has the inherent character and plot momentum driving towards it. But it's in such a way that it's under the surface in the same way that things like the Red Wedding, you start to get that foreshadowing all the way into Game of Thrones and it starts ramping up in a clash of kings. But if you don't know the event is coming, then it comes as kind of like this big shock. But when you go back and reread the books with the perspective that George has been building towards this event, that it does that that it's there and it's under the surface. And that's really the way that George writes and that he writes a lot of his shocking twists in such a way that we go back and reread them and we're like, yeah, I see where you actually set that up really well. So Bran as the King of Westeros, I'm going to say a probably on that one. 
I do like the idea of Bran being the king on the Green Isle, or not the Green Isle, on the Isle of Face, the Green Men, as something that seems much more mystical and magical and much more oriented towards what George would do. George has said in the past that the Green Men and the Isle of Faces will come up in future books, and there's always been the question of how the fuck are they going to come up in the books? Like, what is going to be their connection to the series? And the best answer that I've always seen is that there'll be some sort of connection to Brandon Stark himself. And so ha- to having him living the rest of his life on the Isle of Faces with the Green Men, being the king there, being the Werewood King, if you want to call it that, would be a really fitting conclusion for Bran Stark's arc in A Song of Ice and Fire as he melts into the Werewood Network. So I think at the end of the day, the fact that this, the show hasn't shown a huge interest in Bran suggests they wouldn't come up with this on their own, you know what I mean? So th- this does feel like something that, that they, they might have gotten from George. And he just, again, he might have had Bran older in mind, and that, that, might, have, that might have solved certain things in the books. But to move on to our uh, our third uh, big kind of anchor point, that, we've, that of course is the end states of the characters, not just you know brands, not just brands, not just Danny's, but the overall kind of sense at the end. And uh, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I, I thought these worked really well. I thought they worked really well too. And to kind of like briefly go through them one by one, I thought that Brienne writing the white book entry for Jamie was beautiful and wonderful and having her sit on the small council is really good as well. And why didn't you bastards include Sir Barristan Summit in those small council meetings in season one? That's what I want to know. I would like to rewind back eight years to the past and get Sir Barristan back on the small council and get his dumb assery uh, displayed for the for the general public. But I digress. I thought that was really good. I thought that Arya going west was really, really sweet as well. And uh, there's been a question that's uh, I was kind of talking with a few friends about about whether David Benioff and Dan Weiss had read Fire and Blood Volume 1, and I do wonder whether the story of Alyssa Farman, that is part of the story of Jaehaerys, the first Targaryen, was inspiration for Arya and does set the character archetypal historical archetypal historical foundation for Arya doing that move. And I thought that was really, really good, and I was a, felt very satisfied with that being the end of Arya Stark's arc. And of course, like Emmett said, Sansa's Queen of the North, amazing, just outstanding, outstanding stuff. Uh, you, you know, this is going to be weird. Like, I hated every single bronze scene before he sat the small council, I, I've got to admit. But I loved him sitting the small council. Like, he had he has t- graduated from the sellsword to a knight to a lord to the freaking master of coin. And I think that's a, that's a really good uh, ending for him. Whether it's going to be in the books, I don't think so. Uh, and the rest of the small council members, Davos as master of ships, Samuel as, as grand maester, I thought were excellent and fitting with their characters as well. And Tyrion, his Hand of the King, like we talked about, as his redemption for his mistakes. In the case of the show, being his mistakes of, I guess, counseling Daenerys against violence. Oh, God. Why doesn't Davos have to be redeemed for counseling Stannis all this time? Yeah, again, I think that's going to pay off differently in the books. But I agree. it's It seemed very true to their book characters and, and to their show characters to a somewhat lesser extent. And I think you can tell that some of this was direct from the books. I like the idea of them incorporating Alyssa Foreman. I get the sense that... George might have set up Arya's love of Nymeria as a clue to this early on in the series and then went, you know, I should invent another character like that to, to line up with Arya to make clear this is where she's going. That's where Alyssa Farman comes from. But I really like that idea of Arya going off on more adventures because she's always been the one going all over the place, talking to everybody, making friends. That's something, that's something I really love about her character in the book. So that fits. Brienne finishing Jamie's story. I think that's just a, a perfectly emotional and well done. Uh, John going into exile but finding rebirth in the process. We're going to talk about that a little more in a bit. But I thought that that suits his character really well. There was definitely an emo- emotional kick in the sense of things fitting snugly into place that you want at the, at the end of a long story like this. I think there were still some issues in that 
way that we've talked about Game of Thrones when it's gotten past the books, where a lot of the character stuff still works, but when they have to do like big plot functions, you kind of start scratching your head at the details. Like I really thought it was a bizarre choice to have John exiled as this weird compromise with Grey Worm, who I don't understand why he really has a seat at the table. Like I understand he has an army, but he was never realistically gonna stick around and run King's Landing, was he? Like was anyone convinced that was gonna happen? So. I thought it would be more effective if John chose exile. Like that's what I thought we were going to see. Like he 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 would he because he didn't like he he said all along that he doesn't want the crown. But I was I was expecting one more big moment, one more Maester Aemon moment where he's he's is offered the ground by that council and says no, and passing on to Bran the egg on fifth in this situation, the egg who's going to be the unlikely king. You know to to have that Targaryen comparison, and we didn't really get that, which what I would I would have liked to see. And as you know, as we mentioned before, I think there's, there's parts left out of Tyrion's arc that would have made it more effective. But on the whole, I think it felt like George said that these are the end states for the major characters in the very broad strokes. The details and buildup have been changed. But this is, if you want to just run down the end of the Wikipedia entries for each of these characters, it's the same. As we said last week, I think the major exception here is the the Valonqar prophecy regarding Jamie and Cersei. And this, they'll I think they'll still die probably together, maybe at the same time, maybe Jamie shortly afterwards. But... That is one element that is clearly present in the books, was never in the show, and I think is going to pay off slightly differently with those two. Other than that, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable thinking of these as the the end states for these characters. I am too. I, I, I again, like I was saying at the very beginning, like you were saying, they were they were emotional, and I and I was glad that they were emotional. I'm glad that we didn't get a send off for them that was just kind of sterile and devoid of any meaning for us as viewers because we traveled. The same paths these characters have for eight years, uh, at least you know in terms of uh, we've projected ourselves onto these characters sitting in our comfortable living rooms and basements in my case, and that's been uh, it's been great to to have that journey with these characters and then to see them off was uh, it was nice it was nice to say bye to them sad melancholy but it was nice to say bye to them, so uh, we did leave the one character off that Emmett alluded to and that is John's ending and the end of Game of Thrones as a TV show. And that brings us to a question from Lord Travis, our small council master of ships and War in the Waves, who asks, guys, what's your opinion of John's final moments? Is he just looking back, almost symbolically closing the gate on the past and the future is in front of him? Or was there a Mance Raider Bloodraven-like decision made to go missing north of the wall and live out his days among the free folk? Interesting question. I, I think it's supposed to be somewhat ambiguous as well as be hopeful at the same time as to what John is doing in that moment where he's going north of the wall. Is he going on a ranging? Is he leaving with the free folk themselves? It's hard to say. I I want to say I want to say it's the latter for my own satisfaction of John has finally embraced the north as symbolized by him finally petting ghost, which is, you know, pet ghost 2K19 was finally achieved in the fandom and everyone is very happy about that. And that was actually one of those moments that actually really touched me. And, you know, I, I said this thing on Twitter, and I'd, I'm probably way overthinking it, but I did think that maybe the lack of John ghost interactions in Season 7 and Season 8 paid off with John actually embracing Ghost here because John was tempted by the politics of the South. He was tempted to become King of Westeros. He was tempted by his Targaryen heritage, as symbolized by him riding a dragon. Him coming back to Castle Black and embracing Ghost one final time before heading north of the Wall showed John as finally embracing his northern role. He was finally becoming, as someone said on Twitter, and I'm sorry that I'm not giving you the proper credit, someone said on Twitter that he was Ned Stark's son after all in everything but blood. And I think that's a really powerful end state for Jon Snow as a character. Even if I'm like you, I would have 
rather had John choosing exile than being forced into it. I mean, how did he find Ghost? Because Ghost wandered away from the pack. He was going off on his own, who knows where. And that's, that's where John found Ghost. And, that, and that's who John is at the end, too. And that's very, it's bittersweet in an appropriate way. And like Travis, yeah, I was kind of haunted by that moment when he looked back and he just, like, the, the, the gate came down and turned the screen black in that moment because you could interpret it as, as him regretting the decision he's made or embracing it, either one. And they're, they're both present in that moment. And I like the comparison of, of Mance Raider or Blood Raven that he's kind of, He's kind of made the decision to to vanish, to take himself out of the narrative, to to make himself no longer a part of the hero's journey, and just just live out his days. And it reminds me of the end of Battlestar Galactica, which was a, a controversial ending, some of which some of aspects of which I liked more than others. But it had that same haunting sense of these characters who've been caught up in all these prophecy and legends and got to fulfill this narrative that we have and all these quests, just deciding, you know, we're just kind of vanish into history. We're just going to live our lives quietly and be done with all of this. And I really got that sense from John in in in, the, in that end scene in a lot of ways, and it felt really good not only for his character, but as you say, for the characters who have influenced him. You know, someone someone like Torment, someone like Mance, someone like Ned, and and you could feel John kind of you could imagine all those ghosts walking with John as he's make as he's making this decision, walking walking with him among all the live people he's walking with. His ghosts are still with him too, but you get the sense that he's finally he's finally reconciled all of them and can be at peace with them and. Maybe that's kind of the the kind of ending we should be looking for from this story. It's not everything being okay forever, but people be feeling like they can deal with the bad parts of life more and they can accept those sins and incorporate them into themselves. You know, it's the, the sense of being whole again that that, uh, that Anakin Skywalker found at the end of his journey. Yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. So yeah, I really agree with everything you're saying about John leaving his ghost behind and leaving all of, leaving the narrative, so to speak. And I think it's a great meta moment to end A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones in, in similar fashion. He's the guy who is leaving leaving the narrative. He's saying, fuck you to the narrative. Love you, fuck you. I'm out of here, man. So Well said, sir. If only that was the final line of dialogue in Game of Thrones instead of Queen of the North, <laughs> then, then all would be forgiven. 10 out of 10. 10 Perfect out of 10. show. Perfect show. Absolutely. So I think that about transitions us to our questions. We did get a lot of questions for this episode. There were a lot of people that were very passionate either for or against it or had individual questions about the episode itself or about season eight in total. And so some of those questions that we got about season eight, we will address them, but we won't address them here. In our Patreon-only episode coming next next week, Tuesday for all small council members, Wednesday for our King's Garden, Thursday for all of our $5 and above patrons, we will try and answer as many of those questions as you have there as we talk through that episode itself. But so in that light, we did kind of narrow our focus here for this episode, our questions to four final questions, which do talk about individual plot points and character moments from this episode that we figure we can close our reviews of the throne show out with. So our first one comes from Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, who just became a member of our small council. And thank you, Jake, so very much for becoming a member of our small council. And uh, we, we love you, man. Appreciate it. And he asks, how do you think the North will gain its independence in the books? Bring it up during the Great Council and not having any other lord or lady chime in with why they should also have independence seems a little bit suspect, especially with regard to Dorne. There's a great amount of ink that Martin throws at the idea of Dornish independence in the World of Ice and Fire and in Fire and Blood Volume 1. So I do wonder whether Dorne might also say, love you, fuck you, I'm out of here, to Westeros, as well as the North doing that as well. I mean, we have Dornish independence and Dornish autonomy being a defining feature of the characters, of the country's characters, so to speak, or the kingdom's characters 
uh, so to speak, a little bit more specifically. So I do wonder whether Dorne might also piece out from the Six Kingdoms if the North is also leaving as well. But that does that does kind of bring up the the greater question, though, of whether you know the end of a dream of spring is going to have all the seven kingdoms breaking apart again, or whether we'll have five or six kingdoms the way that the show does it. So what do you think, Evan? I think uh, Lord Jake, assistant to the Hand of the King, makes a great point in regards to Dorne. Because I, as we've said before, the, the Dorne in the north, and even more specifically the Martells and the Starks, have a lot of parallels. So, you know, they're sitting at opposite ends of the continent with this kind of strained, cautious relationship to everyone in the middle, especially King's Landing. Whenever Starks go to King's Landing, they get in trouble. Whenever Martells go to King's Landing, they get in trouble. You have the same generational sense of you have both Ned and Duran as kind of the, the quiet, inward ones, and Brandon and Oberyn as the loud, swaggering, sexy ones, and then the the sister Lyanna and Elia, who are both both dead before the series starts, and who the you know the people left behind are kind of obsessed with her memory. And I, I think it would make sense in that regard if you had independence for both, because they both were the, the areas not fully conquered by the Targaryens in the first place. So you get that same sense with both. Like, why should we, you know, be beholden to the Iron Throne? Why shouldn't we be able to to withdraw our support for it just like we gave it, you know, in the first place? So I could I could definitely see that being a factor in the books, depending on which members of Dornish noble families are even alive at the end of the series, because a lot of the remaining ones are probably going to go down. I think what happened in the show is similar to what you were saying about Edmure, where these are secondary characters who are never going to get a lot of attention, and it's not just it's not as dense and multifaceted by its very nature as as George's novels are. So there was never really room for a, a Dornish independence plotline, especially given how I think, as everyone agrees, the show thoroughly botched the Dornish plot and Dornish characters. They were not going to bring that up again in a serious way. Just a few glancing shots of whoever that Dornish prince may be, I think was all we were going to get here. So this seems like the classic kind of thing that there's going to be room for this in the books, not so much in the show. I agree there. So our second question comes from Sir Gibb, one of our sworn swords, who asks, do you think Tyrion's plan to have a great council at every succession is really breaking the wheel? There's a history of this method already that didn't always lead to stability, and wouldn't the most powerful wealthy and lords still bribe slash betroth slash threaten their way to rule anyways? And once there, use all their power and influence to ensure their own heirs succeed them in the next council. Seems like business as usual with the potential for even more unrest than before every time a king or queen dies. And <laughs> yeah, that is a fantastic, great point and question that Sir Gibb brings up. The answer is that it's not sustainable in the long term in a realistic political sense. There's no, I mean, and the, and the reason why it can be found in a single character. Bronn. What is going to prevent Bronn from taking his sword and cutting Bran Stark's head open the first moment that he has the power and opportunity to seize power for himself? And that does set up the possibility that you have strong men and people that bribe, betroth, or threaten their way to rule. So I don't think it's sustainable in the long term. I thought it was a nice emotional touch in the episode, sustainable as a political way to rule the Seven Kingdoms. No, ain't going to happen. I have a couple of thoughts in this regard. One, of course, is that when you take the really, really long historical view, no system is perfect forever. No system is is, is immune to eventual collapse. So how long does a system have to last peacefully before it's a good system? You know, there's really no hard and fast rule for that. So maybe this plan would last a couple generations before breaking out into war. And maybe that's better than the other options. It's difficult to say. I think one element that might be different in the books, getting again into the kind of freakier high fantasy stuff that shows up in the books versus the show is Bran might be around for a long time in the books as king. 
Like Blood Raven has la lasted way beyond his normal lifespan. There's hints that Melisandre has lasted way beyond a normal human lifespan. Plenty of people have compared Bran to the character of Leto II in the Dune series, God, the God Emperor, who lasted for centuries, if not millennia. I don't remember exactly how long he lasted. Maybe George is pushing Bran in that light, that Bran is going to be king of Westeros for like a thousand years, and that the system will change underneath him and with his, with his support. That by the time Bran Stark dies, Westeros will be in a completely different position economically and politically, and you won't have another succession squabble for who gets to take the throne. They'll be in a different place. That's the kind of thing that I doubt Martin is going to directly write so much as suggest. But I think that's, again, it's a way he can use high fantasy elements to inform the politics in a way that would make it different. But it's an excellent question from Sir Gibb that, yeah, this this is by no means a foolproof idea. No, it, it's really not. I think it, it tends to let itself towards strongman rule, towards characters like the Tattered Prince in the book series coming into rule and ruling for a long time and doing all sorts of terrible, horrible things in order to sustain his political power in a place like Pentos. In this case, though, it's grander than a city-state, and it's the whole kingdom of Westeros. And so I think you're setting yourself up for civil wars down the road, lots and lots and lots of civil wars, as we'll talk about specifically when we come to Renly Baratheon in A Clash of Kings. I was just thinking about Renly. Yes, he's another uh, fruit fruitful topic in this regard. So thank you again, Sir Gabe, for the question. Our next question comes from Sir Matt F., a poor fellow patron, who asks, John's parentage is completely irrelevant in the way they told this ending. To make it actually matter, do you think the Kragon Stark reign from Fire and Blood is more of George's vision for John and the throne? After Danny is dead, he takes control, establishes peace, unites the realm as best he can, as he's done his entire story, and then says, I don't belong here, I'm headed north, I've had enough, vote on a new king and don't fuck this up again, peace out. Uh, I, that's, a, that's a great point, Sir Matt. What do you think about all that, Jeff? Do you think that John's parentage was totally irrelevant? Do you think a, a Kragon parallel in the books might might hit that home stronger so there, there there's so many ways to to attack this question not attack it because that's the wrong word we don't attack our patrons on patreon.com forward slash not a cast asoaf but there's different ways to address it right so for me john's parentage is not irrelevant to the story in that it features in the developing john danny conflict in season seven and season eight especially I also think in the books too, as it does in the show to a little bit of a lesser extent, it ends up devastating John because he feels like he's lived a lie his entire life. And that lie has led him to being ostracized by his family, by the people that are supposed to protect him, and by people like Catelyn Stark, who that is the one thing that Catelyn Stark has always done. That is the only thing Catelyn Stark has ever done wrong in her entire life, is treating John in an abusive fashion, especially in her neglect and silent treatment towards him. So those things are actually important for John as a character. The question though is more asking about the plot relevance of John's parentage. And maybe that is kind of the point of the story that it blood actually doesn't matter a whole lot in terms of whether someone should be king or not. Maybe that's the overall grander thematic point that George and the showrunners are going for. Do I think that John's gonna have a Craig and Stark role? In this story, in A Song of Ice and Fire, I maybe. I mean, we, we in our Fire and Blood Patreon episodes, we talked about John, John's parallel being Aegon the Third, kind of this brooding, detached, very sad boy who has lots of reasons to be brooding, detached, and very sad, as we talked about there. And we should feel sympathetic towards him. John, similarly, we should feel sympathetic towards him. Is he going to be Aegon the Third or Craig on the Stark? Some sort of combination of the above? Maybe. And I do wonder now whether does that mean that Bran is actually Jaehaerys the first concil the conciliator in the story, as we had said that Jaehaerys is also parallel to Jon Snow in Fire and Blood. These are the types of questions that make me want to go back 
you know, five months ago, analyze Fire and Blood Volume 1 in a whole new lens and light with Season 8. Not that we're going to do that because that would be a, a pretty significant undertaking, but I do think that some refinement and revisions of the things we were thinking of back a few months ago would be worth visiting at some point down the road, if in an essay format, if nothing else. I think it's a, a common complaint and I think an understandable one that John's parentage didn't really seem hugely plot relevant given how what a momentous occasion it was when it was revealed on the show and how Arplus Eliquis J has been built up. And I think the answer as we've come back several times in this season is that the magical plot is just going to have more of a lasting impact and more of a weird intricate evolution in the books. And I think that is where we're going to see R plus L equals J come into play at least somewhat, because that is what Rhaegar was thinking about more than the Iron Throne. As far as we know, he was thinking about John as a prophetic figure. So I think John will that'll play more directly into John riding a dragon and John's relationship to the others and Endgame and maybe his relationship to the Brand Blood Raven side of the story. And I think in the books as in the show, John is never going to directly put himself forward for the Iron Throne or sit the Iron Throne on, as, on the basis of being Rhaegar's son. I think the option will be there. It may affect how other people like Danny look at him, but I don't think he's ever going to be interested in it. And I, I don't think that's going to be really a huge part of his story. I think that the Kriegon comparison is interesting, but as you say, he also has a lot in common with Aegon Third, And I, I don't I don't necessarily see him sorting everything out in King's Landing personally. Again, I think that... I think some kind of council, like we see in the show, is more likely, even if it doesn't include everybody, like Braun, for example. So thank you, Sir Matt F., for the question. That is something we will probably address a bit more in depth come the next week's patron-only episode about John's parentage and what it means for the overall story and also for season eight in particular and as a whole. Our final question comes from Sir Juan R., one of our poor fellow patrons, who says, Not a question, but I wanted to tell you guys that before, se- that before the season started, 40-plus people... 40 at my workplace bet money on which characters would live and die in Game of Thrones. And I won. Not only that, but I won by a large margin. So a conclusion, being a patron to this fine podcast is starting to give some juicy profits. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you guys for your sage advice, your always correct opinions, and for being the best podcast out there by far. Well, Sir Juan, thank you, first of all, from both of us for the kind words. It's uh, It means a lot. I mean... I'm a shallow man. I I enjoy a compliment here and there. And so that compliment about being the best podcast out there is definitely feeding my uh, already enlarged ego. But, you know, as we always say, we are a podcast that stands on the shoulders of the giants who've gone before us. You know, we could cite a litany of podcasts, whether it's History of Westeros, Radio Westeros, Game of Owns, The Boiled Leather Audio Hour, the Davos Fingers podcast, especially for our chapter-by-chapter chapter format being our, one of our inspirations. We're not alone. This is a beautiful, wonderful firmament out there, and we're glad to have our star up there, and we're glad that we have so many brighter stars that we can aspire to be at some point down the road, and that's really awesome. And on the more like Mercurial level, congratulations on winning your, your death pool. If you want to become a patron of our podcast, you can see that it's a pay-to-play sort of system here. You like help support us, and then you make hundreds of dollars in the process. So I think it's a win-win, right? Not a cast became a pyramid scheme so slowly I didn't even notice. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for your kind words, Sir Juan. As Jeff said so beautifully, we are building on the hard work of people that have come before us. 
And we're, we're so grateful to see not only you guys enjoying our work, but a lot of those guys enjoying our work. Whenever someone like Aziz from History of Westeros or Matt and Sked from Davos's Fingers or Stephen Atwell says something nice about the podcast, that just means so much to us because so much of what we're doing here is a tribute to their hard work and the influence they had on us. And yes, as good old-fashioned American capitalists, we're very happy that Sir Juan is profiting off our hard work. <laughs> we hope that all of you do in some fashion or other. Yes, and not just monetarily, but of course, profit your brains, Right with our very smart words and our fantastic, mind-blowing fucking ideas. Like, this is how you should be profiting most of all, from our brilliance. And that is a great way to... No, I don't know. That's, it. That's, that's, that, that's the most Jeff Bezos stuff I've ever heard come out of your mouth, my friend. <laughs> but, I, but I love it. I love it as always. So, I think that just about wraps us up for Season 8, Episode 6 of Game of Thrones, the final one, The Iron Throne. Wow, it's over. Thanks for listening so much, guys. We, we really appreciate, obviously, your your attention and your, your, your time whenever you give it to us. Of course, there's so much content around Game of Thrones right now at the end, so picking us to listen to is, is very special, so we appreciate it. Thank you guys so very, very much. As always, if you are interested and willing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, and now Spotify as well. Like Evan said before, we are now available on Spotify for those of you who for those of you who use Spotify as your medium to listen to podcasts, we're there now too. Our patron, as we've cited quite numerously in this podcast, can be found at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOF, where you can get bonus episodes, early content, Q&A, show notes, and special patron-only content there. You can follow us on, on Twitter at notacastASOIAF or shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsspiceandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next week for our regular chapter by chapter episode, this one on Daenerys 8, where Miri Bosdor casts shadows to save save let's go with save Kyle Drogo we're going to be doing our, our next live stream episode on a Game of Thrones RE5 the Ned Stark execution chapter we figured it'd be a perfect choice for that we're going to be doing that on Monday the 27th at 8.30pm we're going to be throwing up the, the link to our, our uh, YouTube channel in the appropriate place for it over the next couple days and be hyping it up fairly relentlessly so don't worry you'll hear more about it and as we said earlier in the episode, if we do reach our, our $5,000 a month threshold on Patreon, you'll be getting a lot more of our ugly mugs talking about these chapters over on YouTube. So we look forward to that as well. And um, additionally, join us next week for our Patreon-only episode that we mentioned earlier for all $5 and above patrons, our wrap-up and overall review and analysis of Game of Thrones Season 8. So that's going to be out starting uh, next Tuesday. And we uh, really enjoy that as much you've enjoyed this one hope you guys have as well so it's been so much fun to do these thrones reviews episodes with you guys thank you so much to our patrons for the questions that help make our podcast episodes so much better than what it could be if it was just Emma and i just talking back and forth to each other thanks for listening and we will see you guys next week <laughs>